Do you pride yourself on finding the best deals and savings? Yes, it's me. I'm raising my hand. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop. Get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every single category, including fashion, beauty, home essentials, travel, dining, and so much more. Shop brands like Macy's, Adidas, YSL Beauty, Samsung Petco, just to name a few. Plus, membership is free and it's easy to sign up. Cashback rates change daily. Here's how it works. Stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and then Rakuten shares a commission with its members via check or PayPal quarterly. And you better believe how exciting it is when your PayPal alerts you that you've gotten money. It's no wonder Rakuten has 17 million members who are already saving. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cashback really adds up. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas for $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome, everyone, to uh, an hour into Eva and I just hanging out, complaining about everything, gossiping about everything. I infiltrated the conversation at one point to talk about Pokemon cards. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a it's a usual, it's a typical Tuesday here. Listen, wax and poetic. I went and got some lunch wine. <laughs> what kind of wine is that for people who know what wine tastes like? So it's actually one of my favorite Trader Joe's wines. It's Cocobon, the mm. dark... It's like a dark, uh, dark red and it's only like seven bucks. So I love the... when people say good wine is also cheap. I, I, I love breaking the, the idea that like, oh, it has to be $300 for it to be good when it's like two buck chuck is pretty tasty. Yeah. This one was one of my faves and felt like in a good, you know, homage to the boxed wine of oh. When I first got hired and we were recording at Christine's house. There's nothing I miss more than the stains of boxed wine on Christine's old <laughs> wooden table. Um, Aww, the also, good old days. fun fact, uh, RJ just came into my room and he said that there was a, uh, apparently our, you know, you can't see it right now because well, I don't want to give it away. Apparently outside of our apartment right now is uh, a 1960s set Apparently they're filming some some movie right outside. Of, it's the most oh Hollywood God. thing that's ever happened from my bedroom. But he was like, look out the window. It's the 60s. And I was like, oh, I guess we have oh time traveled. Wait, so, like they made the street look 60s so they could shoot outside yep. and on a street? Wow. A, they're clearly doing a period piece in an exterior shot for it. There's like cars, vintage cars all over the place. The whole oh the building God. looks like, I don't want to say where if i tell you what building people will know exactly what street i live across from yeah um but some pretty obvious buildings in burbank um <laughs> currently look like the 1960s version of themselves so oh my god that's kind of like uh my friend when i first first moved back to la from colorado a friend of mine she worked in a stationery store she actually um one day texted us and was like you guys the um what was it? It was the tiny park from Parks and Rec. Was They oh. had set it up in the parking lot right outside the store where she worked. That's so fun. Yeah. So forever I like pass that, that uh, parking lot and I'm like, the tiny, the tiny park used to live there. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I. Uh, it was very. It was weird to look out my window. I felt like I was in Pleasantville all of a sudden. So, anyway, that's the. That's if anyone wants to know what it's like to live in Hollywood. There you have it. <laughs> anyway, Eva, do you have a reason why you drink this week? Oh my gosh, do I? I didn't even think. I know I like demanded you ask me last time. <laughs> no, I don't. And have this one. time, nothing. And the fine, I organically asked you, and, <laughs> yeah. and for nothing. Okay, I can think of something. Let me think. Well, I, in a good way, I had a great weekend. Rachel and I went to Malibu just for a night, and she booked us at this like gorgeous, cute Airbnb that was a mini castle. It was kind of like a tiny Shut house. Shut the fuck up! Are you kidding? But me? it was like a mi- like shaped like it was like one turret of a castle, and then you like spiral down this tiny staircase to the bedroom. So and... you're you're Rapunzel, is what I just heard. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Literally, there's like a, uh, I'll send you that picture too. Although I look very sleepy because we figured it out like right when we woke up, we were like, there's a door there. And then we opened the door and we were like out in the, like the side of the turret. We were like, what? What a perfect segue into a horror movie where you wake up realizing there was a (laughs) door potentially unlocked all night long. (laughs) Correct. It was double locked, thankfully. So we found out the opposite. That we were extra secure. Unless someone broke in and double locked it from the inside while you slept. Okay, literally that was my fear because like the next (laughs) night I was like, and if there's a fire and if there's like we watched Scream that night too. So I was like, what if there was a killer? We would die down here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that sounds fun. Every time I go to Malibu, I listen to Miley Cyrus's Malibu on principle. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. wow, when you're listening to that right by the ocean, I kind of like, I feel like it's the first time I've listened to a song and I... I, I'm in the vibe I'm supposed to be in that Miley wanted me to hear it in. And yeah. I'm like, damn, this is a nice little catchy song. It, it feels like Malibu once you've looked at Malibu. Yes. Wow. Who are we? We're just like the LA divas today. So glam. So glam. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, like not to sound even more like a Kardashian, but Allison and I just went to Calabasas uh, and we <gasps> had the best hummus plate I'd ever had in my entire life so Ooh. next time you head to Calabasas let me know and I'll text you the, the restaurant it was very yeah. tasty fun fact I used to spend a lot of time in Calabasas when I worked at Final Draft because the office used to be there I mentioned Calabasas and the Kardashians together because I remember there was a Kardashian episode where like Kylie Jenner was thinking about moving to Calabasas and all of her sisters were like why the fuck would you move to Calabasas what <laughs> is even in Calabasas what even is there and I didn't understand it at the time when I watched that episode, but then I moved to LA and visited Calabasas and I was like, wow, they weren't kidding. There is nothing to do here. <laughs> Don't they all live there now though? Because yeah, yeah, right. Fun fact. A lot of celebrities live in Calabasas cause it's uh, like a good 45 minutes from like the city, like LA proper and all that. So uh, yeah. 45 or an hour, maybe would you say? Yeah, it kind of depends. I used to have to go in because we worked on East Coast time. So I would drive from my place in, you know, Studio City, North Hollywood area. And it would take like 25 minutes because I was driving at like 6.30 a.m. Oh, not a problem at all. on traffic-y situations, uh, yeah, it's definitely a little different. But... Uh, I know Justin Bieber lives out there with all the Kardashians. Uh, it's a, yeah. It's very pretty, but wow, there really is nothing to do. Maybe there's stuff to do now that so many <laughs> celebrities have moved there, but... Um, yeah. we, actually at that same restaurant with the hummus plate, we rem- that was when we realized, oh, we're in Calabasas. This makes a lot of sense because they were giving us like star treatment. Like for mm. this restaurant was like just like a, I mean, it's just like a regular restaurant. It wasn't like a, a Four Seasons or something. But Allison like put her bag on 
on the floor by her chair and they like raced a chair over so her purse wouldn't have to sit on the floor and they were oh like oh my god we know how expensive your purse must be and Allison was like it's for Marshalls like it's dollars <laughs> but, but they're clearly used to like I don't know Dolce & Gabbana shit like in, yeah. I don't know anyway it was very 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 bougie experience anyway a different a different type of uh, experience to talk about is a super haunted house. What do you think, Eva? <gasps> I'm so ready. I'm so excited. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Everyone knows the holidays can take a toll on your bank account. If you're looking for creative ways to increase revenue, then get started with Squarespace's new feature, Squarespace Courses. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with the powerful built-in Fluid Engine Editor. With Squarespace courses, you can create engaging content your audience will love, then simply add a paywall and set the price. Plus, you can charge a one-time fee or sell subscriptions. Turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to www.squarespace.com slash drink to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It feels very fitting that Juniper is currently sitting on my lap uh, because we all want our cats to be healthy and happy because when they're happy, we're happy. But because we're not mind readers, we don't always know when they're unwell. And in my experience, cats are not the most, you know, open when it comes to sharing their woes. And there goes Juni, literally jumped right off me. So helping us keep tabs on our cat's health is just one reason you should use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter's ultra absorbent crystals trap odor instantly. No more cat bathroom smell, thank God. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust. Plus, the crystals last up to a month, which means less scooping and fewer trips to the garbage can for Blaze, because that's his job. Here's the coolest thing about Pretty Litter. It changes colors to help monitor early signs of potential illness in our cats, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues. And Pretty Litter ships free right to your door in a small, lightweight bag. Pretty Litter has changed the game. The litter box is right near Leona's room, and so it is very delightful to not have that litter smell all the time when she's taking a nap. Plus, we can rest easy knowing that Juniper and his little kidneys are healthy. Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com slash ATWWD and use code ATWWD to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash ATWWD code ATWWD to save 20%. Prettylitter.com slash ATWWD code ATWWD. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let's all take a moment and applaud me for my attempt, my my sharp <laughs> U-turn into a segue that has to do with the ghost stories that I'm going to tell. So Listen, I appreciate it. I appreciate a sharp U-turn segue. That thank you. Is, could be dangerous. Those things are can be dangerous. So physically, I sometimes it. in conversation, it's all rocky. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we have been recording these out of order, which means even I actually haven't recorded together in quite a minute. So Mm -hmm. I want to give you a recap on this story because for everyone else, they just heard the other half last week. But just to give you a quick summary, this is the Glen Tavern Inn. Mm. And this uh, on the third floor, it used to be like a speakeasy and a gambling hall and there was a brothel and some of the ghosts included like Calvin, the cowboy. And oh, uh, yeah. And there were some women who, I guess, uh, were sex workers at the time who have been brutally murdered at this hotel. And they are said to haunt the rooms that they used to work in. 
that's it's kind of, that's kind of the gist. I mean, it's a haunted inn. You can take a, a stab at what <laughs> what goes on there. Ghost beers just floating by. <laughs> Honestly, I've yet to ever cover a story where that is what's happening. And it, once I do, we can just put the podcast to rest because <laughs> I'll know exactly where I'm heading. Uh, at least where I'll tell Christine I where mean, to head. Yeah, it's where we're all gonna meet. Yeah, the floating ghost beer. <laughs> it's where we'll meet in the afterlife too, and we'll. We'll just carry the beer to the next generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I ended saying that there was, I don't know if I ended it exactly this way, but I left you on a little bit of a, a cliffhanger because I said that there is a ghost there that may or may not have been seen, or there may be some experiences. Oh. There was a little mm-hmm. twisty of like, oh, what does that mean? Get ready for this ride because since I've had a few weeks to do these notes, I ended up doing more research than I needed to, and I ended up stumbling across quite a tale. So so before we get into that, I want to finish up the general hauntings of the Glen Tavern Inn because the real part, it's going to overpower this story. So let me me finish up real quick with some of the other ghosts that happen to be at this hotel. Yeah, give me all the B-list ghosts, and then we'll go to the, the, <laughs> the, the Calabasas ghosts. <laughs> so, oh my, you know what? Let's, yeah. Uh, actually, you're kind of, it's Santa Paula, so it's, Ooh. you're not far off. Yeah. So this part of the haunts I found from a blog called Paranormal World of Reynolds, which, by the way, this blog, chef's kiss. They, I don't know who Reynolds is, but you are handling the ghosts at this place. You really uh, gave me a lot of information. (laughs) So apparently in room 308, investigators have done a seance and it was led by Richard and Debbie Sennett, which apparently are big paranormal names in the area. I'm wondering if they're like the Ed and Lorraine Warren of like California. Um, But so have I mentioned Paracons before? No, I don't think so. I don't know why we haven't gone to one, but Paracons are paranormal conventions. Oh, shit. I think we might have mentioned this before, but anyway, so the Glen Tavern Inn actually has hosted Paracons in the past. And they'll have like investigators come in and do like overnight stays or they'll have lectures the next day, conferences, things like that. Oh, I love that because then it's like the things that maybe happen, they, like people can like immediately have feedback and like discuss and then like maybe change their strategies or whatever. Wow. So remember everything you just said verbatim for the next half of the story. Okay. Yes. So also, did you like my like attempt at like a, like a, like I'm a fucking greaser or something? My hair is at that point where like, it's like kind of too floppy to, to do anything for itself, but it's also like not long enough that it hasn't fallen yet. So just kind of. You did have that like perfect, like curl, like one single curl the other day when I saw you, that was just like. I appreciate that. You're always the one to mention that one curl. You're I, someone has to, and I'm glad it's you. It's just very like grease lightning of you. Thank you. Allison literally has called it the Danny Zuko. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, yeah, exactly. It's, I like to think of myself as the non-Scientologist John Travolta. So <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, yes. Okay, so Richard and Debbie Sennett, they were at this Paracon being held at the Glen Tavern Inn. And during this, I guess Debbie, it's very much Ed and Lorraine where that one of them is like kind of a demonologist and one of them says that they're, they have some clairvoyant abilities, mm. much like Ed and Lorraine Warren. So during this, Debbie, who, uh, the clairvoyant, she has, she said she'd spoken to a man named Asa Morton uh, who was looking, f- and this is a ghost, by the way. She's like talking to a spirit from beyond. 
Got she, it. She makes contact with this spirit named Asa Morton, who was looking for his daughter, Lucille, who mm. I guess Lucille also ended up showing up during the session and making contact, saying that she was looking for her father, Asa Morton. Oh my god, it's a ghost ghostly meetup, just like Yumi and Christine. They're just they're just trying to hang, you know. <laughs> and when she asked both Asa and Lucille about their history, I guess they were able to tell the group of investigators that they had both died in the home, which the inn now sits on top of. So it makes sense why they haunt the area. Got it. Another medium during the same session got a vision of a woman in a garden. And later on, investigators were able to find out that Asa Morton died in 1887, a year before his daughter, who died in her garden. So... How did she die in her garden? That's so sad. I think she... It it seemed... It sounded sudden. Like some sort of heart... Like a heart attack or a stroke or something. Got it. But so it's interesting that they didn't even have that information. And they were able to later read about the property and find out that that whole plot happened, that the whole story was true. So also during that session, they so they talked to Asa and Lucille, and they also talked to another spirit, which came forward named Madge. Uh, Madge. Who, and Madge said that her and her husband owned the inn. So I guess they thought that it was a different time period. And so she said, oh, me and my husband own the inn. She said her husband's name was Charles and that he had just gone golfing. And uh, when the investigators asked, oh, where is this golf course he's at? Uh, She said, oh, Charles uh, just went golfing in Sadekoy. So uh, research later found out that, quote, they did own the inn. And in 1957, Charles died at the Sadekoy Country Club while playing golf. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? Wait, so this is a different family, but like the daughter randomly died in a garden. Now the guy randomly died playing golf well they like were able to so during this investigation i don't i don't know if it was like a a, some sort of seance session they were hosting yeah but every ghost that came in was giving them information they were able to completely like find valid valid proof of later so like they had asa and the daughter who died in the garden they were able to Mm -hmm. uh prove that or confirm that and then they had madge and the husband at who played golf and all that information ended up being true so after the spirit of madge left another spirit came forward named Catherine, who apparently worked on a naval base Hmm. you're gonna i i think you'll like this spirit the most purely because Catherine is spelled like Catherine hahn who i know you love 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 Love, who i also now love um (laughs) And by the way, I don't know. I did tell you about the new the WandaVision spinoff. You did. My brain is still exploding. Yeah, yeah. Catherine Hahn's getting her. uh, I can't even handle it. If the theme song isn't Agatha all along, I will absolutely scream. No, like what could top that? Not much. Not much. I'm telling you a whole whole lot of nothing is what can top that. So the, the spirit of Catherine Hahn shows up. Uh, Just kidding. She can never die. Um, oh no she's with us forever and uh this spirit said i'm looking for a party and then apparently pointed to one of the people at the session and went you look like someone who knows how to have a good time wait is this christine as a ghost because this sounds so much like her (laughs) i literally wrote the notes i was like i think Catherine was misspelled it's actually christine so apparently Catherine was a stenographer for uh the navy 
And she said that they Ooh. kept female employees at the inn, so she had to live there but would sneak men upstairs to have a party with them. Scandalous. Party for it. two. Mm-hmm. And the investigators asked her if there was something that the team didn't know about Catherine or didn't know that Catherine should mention. Like, just give mm-hmm. us more information about the, the hotel or yourself so we can, like, corroborate that this is all true. And they ended up getting EVPs on a recorder in response where a female voice said secret and a male voice said, don't tell him, Kathy. <gasps> Ooh. I think Catherine partied a little too hard one night. That's I... what I think. Oh, and you think that's how she died, maybe? I don't know. Maybe. <gasps> I don't know. Oh, my God. I love that, like, that she's still, like, if that, even if that is the case, she's still partying in the afterlife. It wasn't, like, traumatic <laughs> enough to stop her part. Like, she was like, I'm still going to have a good time. I feel like she would be the only woman who would know how to handle, like, Casper's uncles. Like, those, like, <laughs> those three real rowdy guys who know how to party. I feel like they only let Catherine come. But no other people. She'd be the only one that could convince them that the food's actually just dropping right out of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think she she has a way with them, probably. Um, so later they ended up doing research. And in an old newspaper, they found, quote, hotel leased by government and lived in by bookkeepers and stenographers working at Port Hunami, which was the uh, the Navy base. So wow. it was also completely confirmed everything Catherine was saying. Holy crap. The next spirit was Elaine, who apparently was confused because she wanted to be with her family. This one's going to kind mm-hmm. of, if you're stoned, you're going to have a good time. <laughs> so, uh, as Catherine would say. So, uh, <laughs> the next spirit was Elaine, who was confused because she wanted to be with her family. She knew what date it was. She knew it was present day. And she said that she could see them. They were like, where are you? What do you see? She said she could see them working on her as in surgery, and gave the name of a hospital that I guess currently existed. Ooh, creepy. So this ended up becoming a conversation amongst the investigators because eventually then she like faded away and they didn't, get con- they didn't make contact again with her. A lot oh of people God. think that this was not a ghost, but maybe someone who was about <gasps> to become a ghost. Oh and maybe di- someone who maybe died on the table like at a hospital nearby and she like somehow astral projected to the closest group trying to make contact on the other side. Oh my god, that's so creepy and sad. I feel Can like you imagine kind of... coming back Ooh. the next day and being like they're like, "Oh, how was your surgery?" and it's like, "Girl, I was on the other end of a séance." Like that's how it went. And like Yeah, oh my god, yeah, if you come back and like yeah. have the like, "Oh, I went towards a light. It turns out it was a candle in some like randos <laughs> haunted tavern." Yeah, they were she was like, "I was I was getting my wisdom teeth out and now I'm in a haunted hotel <laughs> and everyone's chanting around me. What is going on?" Oh, so anyway, that's so creepy. that one kind of blew my mind because they assumed they couldn't get like hospital records on a stranger or something especially if it was present day so they have no idea what happened but their hope is like someone kind of crossed over for a second and went back to their body but there was it was a moment of astral projection versus ghosts which then brings up the question of when you're doing seances are you actually only talking to spirits are you talking to astral versions of currently alive people i mean it could you could really god that's true get crazy with it um so in room 208, women have been heard up there when nobody has been checked in. They'll still hear voices and sounds of women. Um, during an EVP session, they got the name Mary. And then they got a male EVP one time saying, opening up the door, what do you want in here? We don't want you here. So that's a polite way of saying get out. 
<laughs> Get out, please. And when an investigator asked if the spirit could touch him, the male EVP said, yes, sir. Ooh. Oh, I mean, at least they got consent. At least they got consent. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. And the other people walking by, I guess during this during this session, people walking past the room were really loud. And so the investigator closed the door. So there'd be silence in the room. And they got an EVP of someone saying, thank you. Which I love that it's like this curmudgeon like oh god they're being too annoying out there thank you for closing the door me as a ghost hi i'm <laughs> old it's too loud Turn i have down. sensory issues i have sensory I'm, issues <laughs> i'm in the other world i don't want to hear you fools <laughs> an investigator uh also heard sounds outside of the room one time so uh you, sometimes when you are ghost hunting if you pick up or if you see a sound in real life that you want to be able to debunk right away when you're listening on the recorder later. So if you're listening to the recorder and you hear a sound, you might want to assume that it's a ghost. But a lot of times when you're ghost hunting, you will out loud say, oh, that was the door closing, just so you can kind of oh, write it off so people are paying attention to that audio. Um, so I guess they heard sound outside, this investigator while the recorders were on, heard the sound outside and he said out loud, ambient voices from the hallway just to mm. kind of debunk that sound gotcha and a female voice said uh so they said ambient voices from the hallway and a female voice said my room too as in <gasps> like not just the hallway my room too yo me again as a ghost <laughs> it's hi like, it's, it's also noisy here in too. here <laughs> there was another male evp that said let us in the room old man let us in Ooh. and then one investigator said he was going to use the ovulus and he got EVPs that said, the what? Get away from him. <laughs> so almost as in love... like, I love that they're addressing like, we don't know what an ovulus is. Like, don't come near us with that shit. Yeah. And, it, and that works well with my personal experiences with ghosts because a lot of them, if you aren't getting readings, I know anyone who's a skeptic could just be like, or there's no fucking ghosts, by the way. Mm. But if you're not getting readings, one, there could be no ghosts in the room. Okay, skeptics. Two, a lot of them, if they're from a much older time and they still think it's that day, they still think present day is like the 1600s, a lot of them are scared of a ghost tech that we use. Yeah. So I have I have been in situations where I've had to, where a ghost has told me they were scared of the machines and I had to teach them about the machines. And once they understood it, they were much more active. So oh. it makes sense with my personal experiences that this spirit was like what's an ovulus like don't come near yeah. me with that i like that it was like what you said it was like a ghost that seemed like it was protecting another ghost almost like don't go yeah. near him like yeah i can, I can they, see that's very scary and they like, were homies they were like yeah. don't come at him with that guy mm -hmm. also on the ovulus they got the words order and restore as in like restore order oh god that's so, so like the investigator was like how can i restore order for you and the female evp said please leave me alone honestly fair <laughs> fair yeah get the fuck away from me i don't consent to you being in my space this is my mm -hmm. body and i don't like that mm -hmm. so then they switched to the spirit box the thing that goes oh god yeah. and uh they got a male evp saying stop it and then mm -hmm. they asked did you say stop it and the male evp said yes i did <laughs> confirming and then another evp saying i'm from britain so there you go. The other one's like, but I don't want to stop. I want to keep talking. <laughs> it's like, I got a, a whole backstory. <laughs> here, we're doing icebreakers, right? Here's a fun fact about me. <laughs> Two truths and a lie. <laughs> the investigator said, quote, 
I verbally note that, again, we are in room 208, and an EVP says, yeah. As in, like, yeah, we're all here. Here we are. By the way, again, reminder, this is all from the blog Paranormal World of Reynolds, so give them credit. Please go check them out. This is, like, all... I hope not verbatim. I haven't done my my notes in a while, but I like to think I, I didn't just copy and... I don't think I copy and pasted this, but mm-hmm. uh, this is all from that blog, so it, just please go give them credit. So there was also an EVP later that they heard of someone saying, I'm sitting next to you, and then the voice got closer to the microphone. Oh, no. And said, because I like you. Oh my god, wait, me which, again. Like, <laughs> which like it which like it could be very sweet. It could be very creepy. It could be very yeah. funny. It could also be very historically correct because this was a room where there were sex workers and maybe oh. this was some dialogue from back then. Wow, that's so interesting. A different times they were in room 206. Someone said, "Is anybody in this room?" and they later got a voice of an older man saying <laughs> I'm sorry let me just repeat it so it's <laughs> it's as sweet and pure as I want it to sound <laughs> so the investigator said is there anybody in room 206 and they later checked the EVPs and they got an old man saying we're in 203 glad to meet you oh my god is that not so sweet it's so sweet it's like you're close but I'm over here. I also like that they're like, we're in another room. But yeah. like, hi. Like, yeah. <laughs> you stay there. I stay here. Hi, okay. Anyway. Hi so from the, there. The final ghost I want to talk about, which is what's going to lead into this real topic today, which is mm. the ghost of Pearl. Yes. Um, I think I remember you mentioning. I mentioned Pearl, Pearl at the end. And there is a, uh, one. I don't know what the right word is. Psychic, medium, clairvoyant. I'm, I'm unsure. Usually I just say someone with some clairvoyant skills. If that is not accurate and you are one of the three, please let me know um, so I properly phrase it in future episodes. Mm. The One of the people that you're going to hear the name of a lot is Heather Woodward, who I'm pretty sure is, is one of those three, has some sort of clairvoyant skills, um, and has done automatic writing sessions mm. and things like that. So the ghost of Pearl. Uh, Heather Woodward, she stayed at the Glen Tavern Inn, with a group of people, and during an automatic writing session, this is what she found out about the ghost of Pearl. <gasps> Heather says, quote, Pearl was of French descent. She wanted to be a star. She really liked to count her money. She has a very hearty laugh. She has a broader nose, red nails, red lipstick. Ooh. So without you understanding any part of this concept yet, that was foreshadowing for something we're about to really get into. Ooh. So hang on to that description of Pearl because we're not going to talk about her again for a little bit because okay. Pearl is actually a very big is a is a is a part of paranormal history. Ooh. She's not just a ghost of the Glen Tavern Inn. She means so much more. My God, we're coming for you, Pearl. So let's travel back to 1972. The Society of Psychical Research, we know it well at this Mm -hmm. point, if you have been listening to the show for a million years. Mm -hmm. There is a Toronto chapter, the TSPR. And in 1972, they decided to run an experiment called the Philip Experiment. Okay. Which is the the main topic of this week's episode. Um, So even though we started and you thought that we were covering the rest of the Glen Tavern Inn, it has become... An episode 
under the subject line of the Philip experiment. Ooh, dun, and we're dun, like going dun. across the across the continent to the other side. We to sure are. <laughs> it's like I love it. A little California, a little Canada, mm-hmm. my two favorites. So, um, okay, the Toronto SPR ran an experiment, and the experiment. Uh, I don't know if this is the official hypothesis, but an overarching question was: Can we create? or manifest ghosts out of sheer will. Hmm. So, and I will get into what that means. It, it became a little tricky for me, so I, I will probably do my thing where I over-explain it so other people are less confused than I was. Listen, um, I'll probably be the most confused. I'm happy for an over-explanation. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this experiment, it was led by Dr. A.R. George Owen, and it was overseen by Dr. Joel Witten. And so the two of them uh, created this experiment where there were going to be eight people in the test group. So the eight participants happened to be one of their wives named Iris, mm-hmm. a woman named Margaret Sparrow, who was one of the original chairpersons of Canada's uh, chapter of Mensa, which is like the genius club. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. There was a guy named Lauren and his wife, Andy. There was an engineer named Al, an accountant named Bernice, a bookkeeper named Dorothy, a sociology student named Sydney, and Sue. And I don't know. <laughs> Sue! <laughs> and all I know about Sue is I think she used to be a nurse for the Air Force. I found, for oh. some reason, she was like not, I think someone just very honestly with good intentions accidentally left Sue off of the list from the original site and I had to go digging for the eighth person. So uh, Sue, I'm pretty sure was a nurse in the Air Force and she also ends up co-authoring. Remember I said one of the the people was um, one of the other people in the test group was one of the doctor's wives. Oh yeah. One of the doctor's wives, her name's Iris and Sue end up later co-authoring a book about the Philip experiment. Oh my God. I love that. That's so cute. Uh, so the people that were chosen, all eight of these people, they were part of the SPR's membership, but none of them had any admitted spiritual gifts. So they were not Hmm. really bringing anything based in mediumship to the table. Hmm. So they, the, the main point of this, uh, study was they were going to create a fake ghost, like just amongst the eight of them, they were just going to, it was basically like a writer's room and they were going to create a fake fucking ghost with as much original backstory information as possible using pictures, doing whatever they could to create a life. Uh, And then they were going to, after using this like collective group think or this like collective unconscious or subconscious, they were going to try to make contact eventually with this spirit during a seance to see if they basically pulled something out from the other side Oh, if that that's makes so sense. like, yeah, it's very like, um, like, uh, like ghosty, like a ghosty version of like a Frankenstein almost of like, you're creating, yeah. like bringing life to something like, like you're bringing afterlife to something maybe that like, yeah, bringing afterlife before. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah. I, I feel like there was a bunch of like pocket hypotheses that like weren't actually part of the main study, but there was, I'm sure there's a bunch of little like sub questions about it like are we creating some are we actually creating a brand new being on the other side or are we using our collective group think and actually manifesting someone that already existed and we're just using our potential mediumship to to get information like i'm sure there's a million other side 
things that they could have been testing or at least wondering about while they were doing this. But the main goal was just to see if they could create a, or manifest a being purely out of will. Um, which yeah, it's so interesting. Which is apparently called a thought being. Oh. Uh, I didn't know there was a term for it. It's also huh. a, a tulpa, which I, oh. will, I'll, I will probably cover that as its own topic later. So I'm not going to get into it. But from what I saw, I think that it has like, um, it has history in, it was like a Tibetan belief. I, I don't know enough about it to talk on it, but I think the the concept is like, are we creating a tulpa where we are thinking enough about one thing that we are using enough mental energy to manifest it, even though it never existed before. Gosh, that's so interesting. That also feels a little bit like I remember, um, I listened, it was an episode of last podcast on the left once about, it was like a UFO encounter. I forget exactly which one it was, but they were talking about how like the idea that, that maybe some UFO encounters aren't exactly, aren't exactly the way that people portray them, but that they're more like psychic phenomenon that like they happen, that like, they really happen like in real life, not like you're just, you know, whatever the dismissive thing of like, you're just imagining it, but yeah. that it happens, but that it's like in some ways created out of mm. the way, just the way that like your specific brain works, your specific like everything works I it's just like I remember That's like them such an overwhelming thought <laughs> yes correct I remember being like I'm gonna think about that like try not to and also like gonna have to think about that for the next like like every week for like it's the rest one of, of those moments <laughs> it's one of those moments where like I would if again if I were like a like a little stoner I would totally put that in my back pocket for something to really think about and, like, mm -hmm. I would probably not get very far, but, like, I would yeah. have a blast trying to, like, solve the Da Vinci Code that is what is a thought being. Yeah. Or, like, an experience like a UFO of, like, how much was real, how much of it was, you know, based in me trying to put pieces together and make sense of it, how much of it was my own manifestation, how much, I mean, ugh. Yeah. Like, Ooh. right, like, how much is create, like you interpreting a situation that you don't understand into something yeah. completely different. Like that kind of idea is just so beyond. Yeah. Beyond. So this is the ghost that the group created together. So they sat around, they were like, okay, this is the ghost that we're going to try to manifest with all of our might. His name was Philip Aylesford. Mm. He was born in 1624. Mm -hmm. He was English he was knighted at 16 years old. Oh my God. Good for him. I, I know. Like <laughs> it's almost as if it's not real. Um, he was from a very early age. He uh, joined the military. He fought in the English civil war. He became friends with Charles the second. Um, I, I guess through his military career ended up becoming close to Charles the second. I think at one point he was even a spy for him during the war. Whoa. He ended up marrying a woman named Dorothea, who was who also lived in his town. But she was apparently a very cold woman, although beautiful. But he was very unhappy in the marriage. And while married to her, ended up falling for a woman named Margot. And I guess Dorothea found out about Margot at some point. Because oh, uh, Philip ended up, I guess having Margot move in nearby, like in his like living Ooh. in the stable or some bullshit, like, like not a good life for Margot, but like flew too close to the sun a little bit. And so Dorothea found out that her husband was like sneaking another woman into their, into their property and sleeping with her. And so 
Dorothea accused her of witchcraft and had her put to death. Oh, shit. Mar- so Margot was put to death. Margot was put to death. Wow. So out of guilt for what, for Philip, I guess, causing her death or not standing up for her when she was accused of witchcraft or whatever, however the story goes, he had such grief that the love of his life was killed by his wife that mm. he threw himself off of a high wall and he died at 30 years old. Oh my God. I, for a minute, like forgot that all of this was written and like, not, I was like, these people completely oh fake. Completely wow. fake. It's so, so specific. It's like, it really is like a writer's room. It's just to, to show how dedicated they were to making this being as real as possible. Uh, I mean, and also it leads to like questions about like the power of suggestion. Like when things are mm. happening, is it just fitting into like your, your storyline that you literally created. So, you know, so it's, there's, there ends up being a lot of criticism about the complete lack of scientific, scientific method here. Um, But so we're ignoring that completely for the Philip experiment. So they created this completely random guy with that very in-depth backstory. Some members even visited parts of England. They thought that Philip would live and took pictures of it. So they made like literally like oh, a storyboard wow. had pictures of his oh life God. and someone did a sketch of him uh, just based on the things that they had all described. Eventually they could all kind of have this image of what Philip might look like. So they were all able to sketch a picture of him. They had all these other photos of his life all wow. like, in the room with them. So they were basically surrounded by Philip and his world. They wrote a whole season and they even casted him. They right. Casted him. <laughs> this is so Hollywood. Um, <laughs> I am sensing a theme in this episode. Uh, they would also, I think I, some sources said uh, for a few months, but other sources said a full fucking year. <gasps> they would sit in that room and they would just meditate on Philip and think about Philip as hard as they could. And just imagine Ooh. his life and like, really try to basically crazy making convince themselves that Philip was real. Yeah. That sounds like it goes into the territory of like, what is it? Scrying when you just look into a mirror for so long that something like manifests into or, you know, it maybe it's maybe like a, like a bloody Mary situation where you look in the mirror and eventually there's an illusion that convinces you that what you were looking for is what you found. I don't know. It's like, how do you know what's real or what's not? I mean, I guess it's all again, the not. scientific method is not there. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so this was apparently one big old guess in the 70s. <laughs> so they, that fall in 1972, so I guess it had to have been a, just a few months, but it's still a long time where they were all really committing to like getting together and talking about Philip as if you were real and all this stuff. They eventually by fall start having sessions where they now are trying to make contact with Philip. Hmm. And after a long time, after many, many sessions, I think this was also maybe the months to a year, nothing happened during these sessions. Nothing happened at all. Then a psychologist who heard about the Philip experiment, his name was Kenneth Bartledor, he heard about the experiment. He said, well, no wonder nothing's happening when you're trying to make contact with Philip because you're doing it in such a clinical way. You have to do like an old school traditional seance and like mm. find this guy. So the second that they switched up the environment and made it a little spookier, they started getting picking up on stuff right away. Oh, my God. Which is, is its own other whole experiment we could get into of like oh does environment really change the spirit world's activity that much you know it could get we could get real crazy with it 
We're ignoring that, of course, because <laughs> sub pocket experiments are not part of the Philip experiment. So they were dimming the lights. They were like uh, holding hands like you would around a table and they were really thinking about Philip. And soon people started feeling a spirit in the room. They started uh, feeling like a cool breeze hit them. They started hearing whispers. Most often they were hearing the table raps, which like I still have to convince myself are not actual like Hamilton raps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, I like that of all the raps in the world, I picked fucking <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda Hamilton, not like Tupac. I mean, like, okay. I mean, it's current in your life. <laughs> I also just saw Hamilton like two days ago. Yeah. So let's blame it on that before people like really like just drag me through the fucking mud for like not giving a single rapper any credit. Um, but yeah, so they started hearing table knockings, table raps uh, in intelligent response to questions about Philip's life. So that was the mm. thing that really convinced them that they were talking to Philip because if they said, Oh, Philip, like, did you die? When did you die? Or, you know, how, you know, tell us about your wife. Were you married? And they were getting intelligent responses. But one of the problems that comes from that is that they were asking questions. They already knew the answers to because mm. they literally created his fucking life. So if they yeah. were saying like, Oh, knock if you were knock once, if you've been married and, than a knox it's like well yeah you literally created dorothea and like you know it's, it's so again yeah. scientifically i'm sure skeptics brains are exploding right now and so people could very easily say that these responses they were getting were probably just from their collective subconscious that mm. someone was knocking on something or making a sound or maybe they honestly did not know that they were making the table knocks, but they were creating some sort of sound that gave them the answer they were hoping for based on what they were literally looking for. Yeah. It, it's just so interesting. Cause I was thinking like, it is obviously like fodder for skeptics. Yeah. To be like, well, like, it if is, they, yeah. yeah. If they already knew, but then I feel like at the, on the other end, like obviously anything is good to have like a lens to look at. Right. Like if you're looking at something in a specific way, like even when you're I feel like even when you're just kind of generally ghost hunting, it's like you're, you know, that you might, I mean, I feel like if you know the area, you would know the history and you would also kind right, of Right, that's true. Yeah, you would know like some specific things too, maybe not as specific. So I feel like you're right. Like, like you were saying before, sometimes it's always, it's like a little more impactful when you hear something and then can look it up later with no context and be like, oh my God, that thing. But that's such a good point that like you could go anywhere and already know the context before- mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, like you could go to like Alcatraz and be like, "Is there a prisoner here?" Like, you right? Know, so. Yeah, exactly. Because I feel like it's also sort of a scientific thing of like you can never fully take away mm-hmm. your bias, right? That like unless that's... you do some like dead files shit and someone actually does not know the history of a very random area. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have to be such a specific thing. Yeah, no, yeah. that's such a good point. So that being said, one thing that they could not explain was when the table started moving by itself. Mm-mm. Yeah. And the ta- apparently, like, to a point where to this day, the Philip experiment has not been explained. Like, it, like they can't explain the table moving. And now I guess so much time has passed, no one can, like, go back and see, like, if anyone had strings or wires or contraptions. But all of their hands were together the whole time. Mm-hmm. And the table started out as slightly shifting, but other times it would move across the entire room. 
And the room had thick carpet. Like, there's no reason it should be just, like, gliding everywhere. Ew. Um, sometimes the table would even just balance on one leg for them on command. Ew! It, I don't... That's creepy. The table would dance around. It would, like, rock to, like, the beat of music. It glided up to certain people if they were late to the session, like a dog welcoming you home. Like, Oh, my God. It would run up to them. It would chase them around the room. It would corner people. What? And the table was all over the place. She's the main <laughs> character, for sure. She was definitely the protagonist of her own story. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially her villain story. Yeah. Her villain yeah. backstory. So... Uh, the group was also able to see physical evidence on command, such as like getting the lights to dim or get bright. Again, they never were able to explain this where they would say, like, Philip, can you make the lights dimmer in here? And it would. And then it would intelligently come like bring the lights back up to brightness when asked. So, I mean, that's pretty convenient because, you know, sometimes when you so, just want a clapper and you don't it was have one. <laughs> literally, it was just Alexa before the time before her time. It mm -hmm. was just Alexa's grandmama, you know? Uh Oh my god, so historical! What a, oh my god. What a context. Uh, I'm gonna have family to, tree. I'm gonna have to put my robot into ancestry.com later and see what I come up with. Oh uh, my god. Uh, so during one session, the group actually also saw a white mist floating above the table. Um, at other times, they said that the table felt like it had an electrical current running through it because there was so much energy in the room. Um, interestingly. And also, I'm sure this is, as you said, fodder for skeptics, is that the phenomena would lessen if there were less than four people in the group that day. So if they had wow. only four, if they only had like three or less people come in to have a session with Philip that day, there would be less activity of the day. So you could see it from one end of like, just like a seance, the more people or, or even a Ouija board, the more people doing it, the more energy you're giving the spirits. So that way you get more activity. Yeah. Or a skeptic could be like, oh, there were less people around to, like, pull wires and, like, move the table around. Or there were I, less people around to yeah. do, to be giving off this illusion. I guess so. But that's, like, less skeptical to me just because it's, like, I feel like it would be less inclined to be everyone. Maybe it would be, like, one or two people. You know, like, it would be, like, maybe specific people. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it would be nice to know if they like rotated those people like and it sounds like maybe they were based on like you know if it was less or more people like it seems like people are coming in and out and so if it was like a rotating group of people that would maybe lessen the chance that it was you know any given one or two people that were like pulling strings or doing whatever you know true yeah yeah and, and I mean they were doing this for a long time they did this all the way into like 1975 I think like three years oh, of this so wow I mean they if they it's not like it was always the same people missing sessions, I don't think. So, yeah. Or, like, if someone, like, was sick that day, like, the activity would weaken. So it's interesting. Hmm. Also, another curious part is that in 1974, the group decided to take the summer off from doing their regular sessions, but many of them reported poltergeist activity followed them home until oh. the sessions picked up again. Yikes. So it's almost like Philip, they had manifested this energy, which followed them home. This all, it's, it's, it's such a shame that I can't hear Christine screaming about this because <laughs> it's, it really does fall into one of her biggest fears, which is if you give it enough mental energy, it, it becomes true or it's yeah. more aware of you or it, it might exist a little more clearer. So, yeah. and this would be Christine's worst fear of like, let's create a, com a complete random fucking ghost yeah. and now we've given it so much energy not only does it exist apart from our own group think 
but now it's it's following us home and causing problems and like it was completely manifested of my own doing yeah and also because it's manifested and because like you either did or didn't set the rules for it probably means that there's a lot of like you know the kind of like aladdin genie type like you know like you have to be like really specific about the rules or like maybe it doesn't have certain rules so it doesn't like you know have like a certain thing of like you can't follow this person home like some right. entities might you know right yeah that is really scary we're actually coming up on something soon that is a that's such a great segue if only it got said like two minutes later but remember <laughs> that remember that later yeah. but this is also like further proof of like again i did not do enough research on what a tulpa is uh yet so but what i have understood is that it's it's so much of a of a uh a manifestation from your mind alone that uh, some people believe that a tulpa, once it has been manifested, almost separates itself from the person who originally created it. And now it's its own being. So it's not like you're creating a being that now still follows the complete storyline you started with, but it has so much energy. It's now actually become real. You know what it is? I don't know if this is your generation. Did you watch? Were you a SpongeBob person? You know, I did miss SpongeBob by a teeny bit. Damn it. Okay, so I know. so SpongeBob does this I mean, it's literally Frankendoodle for anyone who knows what I'm talking about. Frankendoodle. Where, I don't know. Oh no, Eva. Tell we'll have me to about wa- Frankendoodle. Frankendoodle is one of the most like popular SpongeBob episodes where basically he like I think he wanted a friend and he found this magic pen pencil or something where he just drew a version of himself. Like he or I don't know if he wanted a friend. I don't remember how the beginning of it goes. But he found this magic pencil and he drew a version of himself that looked kind of like a Frankenstein version of Spongebob. And but he comes to life and becomes his own monster and starts like taking over the town. But so it's very much like in a very small way. That's the Philip experiment where like he manifested a creature and then the creature just became its own being. And now there's like there's really no telling what it's going to do. So So in, in 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 some ways I I don't know it's probably really insensitive to compare that to a tulpa because it's it's got its own history but it is interesting that it's the concept of like creating something that becomes its own being outside of what you initially had intentions for yeah so yeah. um don't want to offend anybody but Frankendoodle is the closest thing that my very <laughs> ignorant mind can come up with so far and I'm feeling a lot of Frankendoodle energy from Philip yeah yeah so uh anyway so the group begins recording themselves now to see if there's any visual or audio evidence that they can pick up during a session with Philip because so much stuff is going on they just took the summer off and poltergeist activity was happening so they bring back the sessions they also start recording because they want to debunk this table moving that's going on so mm, yeah now that they're recording it, they were able to get some of the actual table wrappings caught on audio. They sent that to the SPR, the, the Society of Psychical Research, and they were able to say that those knocks, quote, had a different acoustic quality than normally created table wrappings. What? Oh, that's so interesting because that is kind of scientific, right? It's like you can recreate it in real life and be like, this is what this is. Yeah. With like a hand to the hand to the table. Yeah. It's not the same, like, yeah, and, like, seeing audio, like, I feel like, you know, I edited for so long, it's, like, you can you know so specifically, like, I literally, I mean, I, I know Christina's talked about this, too, but, like, I know what all of your ums look like, I know what all of, like, ev- almost all of the words, such an, like, such I know a, what that is. <laughs> in, like, a, such a randomly intimate relationship that you have with me, where, like, 
Nobody else on earth knows what my ums and throat clears look like on an audio file, but you certainly do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, think of it like that, exactly. Uh, basically, after this, very quickly, word started spreading about the Philip experiment, and the media got interested. Canadian Broadcasting did a 60-minute documentary called Philip the Imaginary Ghost, which apparently is now somewhere on DVD. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Also, kind of rude. We don't know that he's imaginary yet. Like, that's still the experiment. Yeah, also hurtful about my group think that he's still yeah. imaginary. He's very real. He's definitely presenting himself yeah. in certain ways. Sounds like a very good way to get haunted, uh-huh. documentary producers. <laughs> And also, uh, and City TV, I think they're also based in mm. Canada, they did an episode of World of the Unexplained, based on Philip. And CBS brought in a crew to film a session with a live audience for a television documentary called Man Alive. Oh, um, interesting. The live audience filming caught noises uh, that could not be explained, lights going on and off on command, and most significantly, that darn table levitated off the ground in front of a live studio audience. Okay, that's definitely... Well, I mean... But like that also that makes it that makes me feel more skeptical because I'm like, oh, it's almost as if if this were a hoax and everybody was like doing this like just to like get a really interesting story in an SPR journal, it like it went over their heads and now they're about to do something in front of a live studio audience and they have to fucking bring it. Because before then the table never levitated. It's not like unless the ghost is a Gemini or something. They didn't tell me about that and like needs the attention of more people. But then you Mm -hmm. could argue that there were more people in the audience. So more people gave it more energy. Exactly. But then it's also too, I kept thinking back to like, I always love your, um, oh my gosh, the medium episodes of like the, the stories of like the, the people who would like do the old timey, like, you know, like all the like cloth and, you know, various orifices and all of that. So <laughs> it's like all of that happened in front of live audiences too. That's right? true. In my mind though, if it's like a live studio television audience, technology is good enough for people to not be fooled by cheesecloth in your nose, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I mean, hey. That's true, yeah. Maybe not. Also, during the 70s, let's remember that was an era of, like, Amityville Horror and the Enfield Poltergeist and, like, all these huge demons. Like, Ed Lorraine Warren's career was just taking off. So, like, one day I would love to do just – I would love to do an episode where I just do the timeline of what's going on all over the world at the same time. Mm -hmm. Just to be like, well, during this point, this is also happening on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe just – what? Sorry, that also just made me think too that like if people are already if it's all about energy and like bringing in your own like energy, if people are already primed too mm-hmm. to like think about paranormal shit and then they're bringing that energy to it and if it is really energy based, it's like they're just skyrocketing energy. I'm telling the you roof. There, there's nothing more interesting to me than parapsychology of like is it a demon or were you primed to to see that? Did you want to see that? Were you hoping to see that? Did you manifest to see that? Or is it a good old-fashioned demon? Like, like what is yeah. it? So, fun fact, this live audience recording, apparently there are clips of it on the internet, but there is no full raw footage to be found anywhere. But some cl- random clips of it have been um, found by one of the original members of, like, the Philip experiment. Their son, I guess, found oh. a bunch of uh, random clips I found two clips on YouTube that are literally just called the Philip experiment. 
Um, but I can't tell if they were legitimate or a recreation of events because it looks like they're the actual people. And I don't, I don't know if they were recreating it for something. I don't know. Hmm. I can't tell if it's legit or not, but I know it's the original people. I think maybe they're actors. I don't fucking know yeah. anymore. Um, but <laughs> everything uh, is a thought experiment. <laughs> everything is probably not real. So after the Philip experiment got so big, they also started having other groups do diff- this. I think it was done through different labs and different researchers, but other groups started doing basically the same Philip experiment, but manifesting other spirits. Mm. So uh, I think only like a couple months later, people tried to do, uh, the experiment uh, by manifesting a ghost named Lilith, who was a French-Canadian spy during World War II. Ooh, love Lilith. Love Lilith. There was also Sebastian, who was a medieval alchemist. Love oh. Sebastian. Oh, my God. They keep getting better, because then there was Axel, a man from the future. Oh, my Because God. now I'm like, wait, are we summoning ghosts, or are we summoning time travelers? Because if I could have done that shit this whole time... <laughs> And then there's one that actually like got its own name called the Skippy Experiment because in uh, Sydney, Australia, they created the spirit of a 14-year-old ghost named Skippy Cartman. And apparently she gave a lot of similar evidence that Philip did with the table wrappings and scratches on the wall and stuff like that. Huh. Apparently, I don't know if it was all of the experiments, but an overwhelming amount of the experiments where they talked to Lilith or Sebastian or Axel... They all resulted in, quote, similar manifestations, including wrappings, noises, and table moving. So hmm. it's interesting that it makes you wonder, like, are they all real or are they all fake? And if they're all real, why are all these manifested ghosts showing themselves in the same way? Like, why? It's almost like they have, like, some MO, like, oh, well, if it's a manifested ghost, you can expect the table to move around a lot. Versus if it's a real ghost, the doors will open. Like, yeah, it's weird that it's all similar. Yeah, or if it, I wonder, too, like, it would be super, like, you know, a little bit less fun ghost-wise. But even if it's not ghost-related, if it's, like, something specific in, like, you know, human brain chemistry that, like, if yeah. you're you know, creating a story like that. Maybe it's like a storytelling part of your brain that then here, like, I don't know how that would connect to like, you know, tables levitating, but I wonder if there is some kind of like connection there that would be like, yeah, you think about writing on a piece of paper and then you think about a table and then like you manifest like a sound there or something, you know, it's very weird. Yeah. Like it's weird. It's like, it's like, there's almost a clinical, it's almost like they're writing out like a, a textbook way that only manifested spirits will show themselves at first or something. It's pretty yeah. Cool. Or if you're like manifesting connections somehow by thinking about, yeah. or like, Oh my God. Yeah. I tr- oh my God. Do I have any, no, I don't have any weed here. I was like, this is like, <laughs> do I need some weed for this? <laughs> I'm telling you, this gets silly. Like yeah. if, you, if either of us were like stony baloney right now, it would be a <laughs> This First of all, we wouldn't get through the notes because every time I would just be like mind blown all over again. Correct. Correct. So in uh, many of the other experiments, there were similar manifestations. And this Im- this implied to the researchers that at least because it was happening consistently every time they tried to manifest the, a thought being um, that anybody with enough mind power and enough willpower can create paranormal energy. AKA it was Aww. a big experiment in the fact that like, the mind is fizzucking powerful and fascinating yeah. and scary and possible explanations for this beyond it just being a hoax and everyone was in on it every time. 
They think that the participants were just desperately looking for confirmation bias anytime something potentially paranormal happened. Mm -hmm. They thought that their own collective unconscious could have actually created a tulpa or a thought being or some energy manifestation. So one of the arguments is like, hey, it just really fucking happened. (laughs) And really, it could just be a manifestation of everyone's collective group think combined with a shared delusion um of like Ooh. like kind of like full i'm guessing it's the same of like folio de or whatever yeah christine likes to talk about where like it was just like the shared fallacy mm-hmm. uh i mean they were literally sitting in a room for a year with pictures of this fake person like trying to convince himself he was real so like it's not hard to imagine they all were just like working off of each other and ramping each other up every time there was a sound and it yeah so it could have also been from what one of the doctors themselves think, the doctor on the team. He says that it could have been a combination of their sub-psyches working together when it came to, like, the knockings and for intelligent responses. But as for the movement of the table and the command of light switching on and off, he cannot explain it. He was like, I don't fucking know what that was. A lot of critics say this is complete horseshit, everything, because there was no scientific method. They believe that both the experiments were just a combination of confirmation bias and the uh, ideometer effect, which is basically, I don't know if I said that right, but it's the concept that, um, like with Ouija boards, where they think like, oh, there's some sort of like hypnic jerk oh. or or your body is, you're, you're subconsciously doing things because you want to see the answer. Interesting. So, it was some sort of like, oh, it was your own body subconsciously giving you what you want. Huh. Um, but it does make you think that if, like, paranormal activity could simply only exist because other people's collective subconsciousness has wanted to find activity. It makes you it makes you think in some yeah. ways about, like, every haunted location you've ever been to. Was it really haunted or is this, have enough people over the years just given it enough mental energy that something exists? Or that would explain why skeptics don't ever experience anything, but believers do because they've just, it's basically just the power of suggestion and their own, their own interest in finding something. Yeah. Um, it's like the paranormal, the secret. You gotta want it, it hard yeah. enough. <laughs> it's the secret. It's the secret. It's love languages. It's probably a reality show mixed in there. It's a it's a <laughs> lot of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and fun fact, because you mentioned this earlier about like if it was its own individual being over time, um, and had they set rules for it or not set rules for it, what I'm calling uh, the Frankendoodle effect uh, <laughs> is that. Fun fact is that one of the participants during one of the sessions actually made a joke to Philip that if he didn't answer their question, then the group would just stop talking to him. Mm. So like setting a rule for him. And all of a sudden that day, all of the activity was completely halted. They did not get any more signs of Philip again for the rest of the day. And the group had to like convince Philip to come back and talk to them. So it, it hinted that... A spirit and its activity or the individual being that you personally manifest uh, can stop just as fast as it was created. Like if it was if it was truly just a thought or just mental energy, it can be destroyed as quickly as it showed up. That's so interesting because that also is so, so human. Like, I feel like that's also double edged of like the cold shoulder is like probably as old as time. Right. Like, oh, you're being stupid to me. Well, I'm going to be stupid right back to you. You know, like that idea. So I feel like that's also very like 
either, right? A skeptic could be like, oh, well, like humans know that. So they, of course, would like respond that way. Then again, also, if that entity is like, you know, if you're pulling from energy of, like, of course, that would also be there for that. Right. That's so interesting. So anyway, in 1976, Iris, Owen, and Sue, they wrote uh, Conjuring Up Philip, an Adventure into Psychokinesis. Oh, my God. It almost sounds like a children's book. (laughs) Conjuring Up Philip. Actually, TM, 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 TM. Uh, Except uh they already have the TM, TM. But we get the second one. (laughs) Also, in 2012 and 2014, there were movies called The Apparition and The Quiet Ones, not to be confused with The Quiet Place, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. or A Quiet Place. Um, But both of those movies were loosely interpreted, uh, loose interpretations of the Philip experiment. So if you watch those and you see any um, similarities, that's why. And now, very quickly, because I know I've been talking for a full 45 fucking minutes, and I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, but, no, I'm so sorry. I feel like I keep interrupting you to be like, no, I'm, it's a, I'm, I no, have it's questions. A, it's a good one to banter on. It's just, it's, I'm sorry it's so long. I, I, I walked all of us into a long <laughs> episode because I felt the need to do more research than needed. So now, fast track. That was the 70s. Come all the way back up to 2007. The couple of months before the Glen Tavern Inn had Paracon. <gasps> oh my God. I'm so ready for this. And a group of investigators decided that they were going to recreate for themselves, just like the Skippy experiment and all these other uh, replications, they were going to create the Pearl <gasps> experiment. Oh my God. What? This is like mind blowing. This is like, so I feel like you've just created this paranormal web of information and now you're just like dropping these like bombs, like to be continued and here it is here. It's the, uh, the Charlie day with the red string picture. That's exactly what it is. So they decided that they were going to manifest a ghost at the Glen Tavern Inn with the goal of researchers coming in soon for the upcoming Paracon. Oh my God. To investigate her, see if they could find anything for themselves and not in a way of like tricking them into thinking there was a ghost, but in a way of like, let's see if we can actually manifest new energy and get proof of it from other people. Yeah. So the other goal, by the way, was to discuss the findings of the experiment at a one of the later lectures of Paracon. So they were going to let people investigate Pearl the whole time. And then there was going to be this lecture that they had already signed off for at the convention where they were going to talk about the findings of the Pearl experiment and go back in time and talk about the Philip experiment and what we've wow. learned in the last 40, 30 years or whatever. So there was a That's whole... so interesting plan to it genius and also doing it in a haunted house where there was already several ghosts and all of these investigators were already coming in Mm -hmm. so they used the uh hotel's haunted history to create a fake ghost and they uh basically like i mean they did the same thing that a lot of the philippines they did with a smaller time span they didn't do it for years and years and like Mm. meditate on this person for years trying to conjure somebody But they did know that the place was already haunted by a lot of sex workers uh, that uh, were part of the brothel. So they already Mm. had kind of that history where they can make up a legitimate story and it could easily fall into, you know, the zeitgeist of the Glen Tavern and and its its ghosts. So they decided that her name was going to be Pearl. And the story goes that Pearl, who is actually named Jane, but they call her Pearl because uh, she was wearing pearls when she died. Oh, 
She was French. She had a broad nose. She wore a green dress, which had a pearl necklace. She had a loud laugh, which can allegedly be heard in room 107. So they're not only just making up her backstory, but making up her haunts in the building. So people can are kind of primed to wow. know what to experience from this ghost. Oh, that's so interesting. Huh? People hear her laugh in room 107, along with the sound of her twirling her pearl necklace. Um, she moved out here originally to get into the movie business, but she ended up working in the brothel and she was later buried in an unmarked grave. She was killed by a tall cowboy who was in the speakeasy. He had a big hat and a dark mustache. His boots are still heard walking towards her room as they did before he killed her. Oh, and he strangled her with her own necklace while she was turned around and counting her money from that night. And you can still hear the beads break off of her and hit the floor. Oh my god, that is so specific. Again, Pearl's fucking fake. Um, Again, forgot. (laughs) (laughs) And they also not only like came up with this story and the ways that she haunts people, but they also put in descriptions. uh, They like had printed descriptions uh, sent out to the press, uh, like about all. Like, let's insert her into like the list of ghosts that people are also expecting to see at the Glen Tavern Inn. They were trying to put her in as much media and as many outlets as possible. So it looked like she was always part of the list of ghosts for the last hundred years. Wow. So they found fake pictures online that seemingly looked like how they thought she would. Um, And they were intentionally incorporated into her backstory. So she would come off as more legitimate. This is actually an email that was sent out to the original members of the Pearl experiment before Paracon actually happened. They, this was like one of the secret emails that was sent Mm. out. Hey everyone, here are the words that we're using to thought manifest Jane slash Pearl to keep the momentum going. Please recite these words at least once a day and visualize (gasps) and meditate on Pearl's life at the Glen Tavern Inn. Also, please note that I've made a forum called the Ghosts of Glen Tavern Inn. By the end of the week, I should have all of the ghost stories I've called in the forum. Pearl slash Jane is mentioned as one of the ghosts. You can check it out here. This, hopefully, will catch on and give us some place where we can track sightings, EVPs, etc. even after the convention. Also, Pearl was just mentioned in this article by the VC Star article. Additional information was added, including her red lipstick and red nail polish. So her her story's, like, already growing before their eyes. Wow. Also, not to be that person or to be super blasphemous, but when you talked about, like, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't think about it the first time you mentioned, like, manifesting or, like, you know, thinking about something so specifically but that also sounds like prayer a little bit doesn't it oh actually maybe yeah yeah just in, i think like, sitting with a group of people and really thinking very hard about one person and hoping they'll yeah. come back you know i don't know maybe sorry everyone currently practicing that <laughs> is very blasphemous but just so, a thought I feel like a lot of things we discuss on here are pretty blasphemous. So. <laughs> so the original, again, just like the Philip experiment, there were eight people part of this Pearl experiment, one of them being Heather Woodward, who we have been talking about since last week. Mm. Um, there was also a woman named Amy. There was a guy, Chad. There was Sid Schultz, loving that we have the same last name, except Ooh. his is spelt wrong uh actually i don't know if sid is a he wow that was really fucked up of me then there was someone with an even cooler first and last name combo dave davy and then a woman named i literally almost spit (laughs) uh then maria Kristen, 
Uh, and Bill Murphy, who is like part of the sci-fi network on the show Fact or Faked. Oh, cool. And so all of them came in. They were doing all of this manifesting. They were they were the ones getting those emails about Pearl and doing all they could to create her as an individual being in their mind. So by July 2007, they have their very first session together where they're trying to make contact with Pearl. And they do it in the mm -hmm. lobby of the hotel. They concentrate on her. They describe her over and over again, visualizing her. And Heather starts doing automatic writing. Mm -hmm. So they make contact with her, but Pearl's only speaking French, which is very interesting because none of them spoke French. And yet they had created a French woman. Okay, that is really interesting. And so Heather, who is automatic writing was only getting broken phrases of French. Now I don't know enough about automatic writing. If Christine were here, she might be able to give me more information, but my thought was with automatic writing, even if you don't speak the language, you should be able to write in full French. If it's not you doing the writing, if you're just like the vessel there, if you, if they're just using yeah. you as a vessel to be able to write, then in theory, you should be able to write any language in, would, in my ignorant mind. No, I would think so, too. I've always been super spooked by automatic writing because of that reason, because of like not specifically language, but that it's so outside of you. Like it's something yeah. that's just flowing through you, you know, so I would assume. So that that's where mean. that's where I'm kind of on the fence about this, because none of them apparently spoke French. But Heather also was saying like, oh, well, I was trying my best to automatic write, but I don't speak French. So I was only writing down like sounds that I could pick up. And it's like, oh, well, if you were automatic oh. writing, I don't know enough about, hmm. about automatic writing, but it feels like it just, she just said, I, I don't speak French. So I was only getting broken phrases. And I, I heard the word vu a lot. She even said like, because I was thinking about like the lady marmalade video. Oh the, my God. So she was like, I know they were saying the word vu a lot. So I don't know. I don't know enough about any of that to make a full huh. statement, but it sounded kind of weird. Yeah. But Heather did say that she got the phrase, je te meilleur française bonsoir, which I guess can be translated to, I'm better at French than you, good night. Okay, I mean. Which is kind true. of ironic. Kind yeah. Of ironic, <laughs> given the whole conversation we just had. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, after uh, they had these sessions with Pearl, eight months later, after they began manifesting her, Someone actually, unbeknownst to them, not part of the paranormal world at all, just staying at the Glen Tavern Inn, got a picture in the lobby where they had done these sessions. They got a picture in the lobby of a woman matching Pearl's description, <gasps> twirling her necklace, and you can only see her in the mirror. What? Oh my god, that's weird and creepy and... And... Like, yeah, and uh lapd had a like a forensic photographer come in and confirm that the picture was not doctored oh my god um, so i will ar also argue for the skeptics that like this was literally an inn full of ghosts that died while working in a brothel and if they were trying to make pearl fit the description of other sex workers at that time it doesn't shock me that they would find the ghost of a sex worker when there were actual ghosts of sex workers there and they're just yeah. calling this one Pearl, you right. know what I mean? So I don't know, but I guess this one, like, because she had a Pearl necklace, it was like very on the nose. And, yeah. um, but Bill Murphy, again, from, uh, the, the sci-fi channel, or as my dad will call it, the Siffy network, um, Bill Murphy said, these thought forms tend to break away and they start to give signs that they're thinking and behaving independently of those that created them in the first place. So again, very much the Frankendoodle hmm. vibe. Frankie Doodle concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
anyway, so that all happened before the actual Paracon event. And so at the actual Paracon lecture, Bill Murphy was the one that was hosting it. And the lecture was called Explore the Theory of Thought Form Manifestation. And during their findings, they uh, were able to talk about the Pearl experiment. They were able to show off the picture that this very unassuming visitor was able to actually get, which like only wow. confirms that they were able to bring a creature to life or bring an entity to life. Yeah. And during this lecture, this is like kind of left field ish, but uh, on top of talking about the Philip experiment, talking about their uh, findings that weekend because of the Pearl experiment and showing off the picture, people in the audience were also able to try a new mind and matter experiment in the audience of this lecture. Oh, shit. So they got to use, this is from like Princeton's, one of their big science labs. It's a, an electronic machine called a random event generator. Oh. Okay. So I guess there's this concept in quantum physics. Yikes. I'm not about to get into that, but like in a very, very layman's terms way, there's a concept in quantum physics where like your, uh, like thought can control random events or I, I look, this is for another day folks, <laughs> but they got to use this random event generator and the machine shows how atomic particles react to mental power or react what? to react to thought and on a very mic on a very very microscopic level but in theory the more people putting that mental power towards something the more particles that will be able to react or behave accordingly oh my so god Whoa. The, the studies studies have actually shown that the more people thinking together about something cause more particles to quote behave more orderly so huh literal mind control like on a very microscopic level but physical mind control where in theory this means that with enough group consciousness or enough group collective manifesting uh you can affect physical matter aka from a paranormal aspect we can in fact conjure entities or tulpas or spirits or paranormal phenomena just by thinking about it really really hard and this is the result of something called quantum tunneling, which is just for another fucking day. Oh, my God. Ant-Man? Hello? <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of what we... I, I can't. I can't. I, I can't. <laughs> anyway, that is a very a literal hour-long part on my end. I'm so sorry, everyone. To the end of the Glen Tavern Inn, plus the Philip Experiment, oh plus God. the Pearl Project. Wow. Um... I never, want, I never want to think again because somehow quantum physics seeped its little way in there and I hated it. That is for sure the thing. Like the same thing that I was kind of thinking, like talking about with like that last podcast episode and like UFO things. That's like the thing that like I will like I like your brain like simultaneously shuts off about because it's too much and also thinks about like nonstop. Yes. You know, it's like. Yes. It's, it's like so I I'm I'm obsessed and f- for that. I cannot ever think about it again. It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like what I assume my love for Doctor Who is, where it's like I know it could, I could go too deep too fast, and therefore I'm just not going to touch it with a ten foot pole. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Yep. No, I understand. Anyway, apologize. I apologize to everyone for how long this was, but I hope you're having a great road trip somewhere. <laughs> Or you're really deep cleaning your apartment now. No. Oh my god, Em, I loved it. Thank you for telling me that. It was so good. 
I look, this is Eva's last episode with us. And so uh, I really wanted to make you hang in there for as long as possible, <laughs> apparently. Blaze and I just went to a New Year's wedding and we have one coming up next weekend. Not a New Year's wedding, but another friend's wedding. And I just love weddings. I feel like I've said that so many times at this point. And that's why I always love telling you all about Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From free planning tools like a customizable checklist and website to a venue and vendor discovery tool that matches you with your dream team, everything on Zola is designed to make your wedding journey as easy as possible. And with invites that are fun to create and a wedding registry packed with gifts you actually want, Zola takes you from save our date to thanks so much without breaking a sweat. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go. Zola really has become the sort of one-stop shop for wedding planning. I used Zola when I got married and it was an indispensable tool. I could not, I swear to you, I could not have gotten half of the stuff done that I did without Zola on my side. But now Zola, I'm only a little bit bitter, has so many more amazing tools. They have an app. They have all sorts of stuff like that that wedding vendor discovery tool. You know, that is really cool. I, I kind of want to go back. Blaze, should we get married again? Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A dot com. Daylight saving time is starting up again. It may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash drink. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why 4 out of 5 employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash drink. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash drink. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We've made it to almost early, uh, early, early dinner time. Yeah, early fall sunset time. It's, I feel, I feel so silly. I'm sorry about that. No, oh my gosh, no. And I feel bad because I hope everyone is still on a road trip and also so sorry because <laughs> I also went on quite a deep dive for you and also a lot of uh, similarities so my story is also French it's also from the, <laughs> like old timiness times fun yeah so I'll just kind of try to go through as quickly as I can I'm really sorry that my no, song too <laughs> it's okay it's okay this is just people oh well when when does this one come out like around yeah, I think it's like the beginning of December, maybe? End of... Hang on, let me... I can double I check. I don't know. Maybe people are traveling back from trips. That's true. Let's, Let's cross hope. our fingers. Let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's yeah. like, no, and we're all at work, and we're so <laughs> fucking over this. And we're just trying to get through. <laughs> we're just trying to get by. Sorry, everyone. Okay, so I'll try to go as fast as I can. Um, no, don't ru- don't rush yourself. We're all we. This is again. This is the last time that we're hearing Eva tell a story. So everyone, this is a your last chance, folks, to hear that's Eva's true. sweet, sultry voice. You know. Oh, I think that's honestly partly why too, because I. So basically, I from the beginning kind of had big plans for I, the first story topic I even thought to do was Eileen Wernos who, I don't know if you know who that is. She's like a really big female serial killer. Um, Oh, wow. 
that's the story that Monster is based on with Charlize Theron that oh. she like you know changed her entire appearance for. I uh, basically got too intimidated because it was such a big story, and then I watched like the first twenty minutes of Monster and was like, <laughs> "No, thank you." <laughs> it's just like I was very. Like, I... I feel a lot and I'm scared. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, it basically was just like really, really brutal. And I thought, you know, especially after the last story I told that was very like Oof, Eva. intense, emotional. You really abusive. said, I'm coming onto it and that's why I drink and I'm going to give the folks a reason to fucking drink. You, I did. I'm <laughs> so t- sorry. It was a lot. So this one I just got really deep into. So basically what happened then, I looked up like so many other like stories and was thinking through so many other things and then I really tapped into like a 80s 90s kid like part of my brain that was like hey remember how much you loved like Ocean's Eleven and the Italian job (gasps) and like heist movies and I was like heists are crimes too so certainly are we don't cover enough of them and also like I love that I, I think a lot of things about you, but I don't think, <laughs> damn, that woman loves a good heist. Oh. So, like, I feel like I'm learning something about you. Totally. I fucking love a heist movie. Like, The Italian Job, watched that for, like, entirely too long. Like, so much. Just where on do repeat. You th- where do you think you would fall in a category of the of a, a group of, of people on a heist? Like, would oh. you be, where are where are you on that chain? already got the answer because I think I loved the Italian job so much because I wanted to be her. I was like, listen, I want to go to a driving course. Like I want to do that. Like fancy little, like it, like ti- that's why I have a tiny Fiat. Cause like, I just love the little, for like your, you for your tiny. getaway pursuit drives. <laughs> yeah. It's oh like, I'm God. the getaway driver. <laughs> you know what? Good to know. Next time uh, we're late to a, a venue or something, I'm going to be like, this is your moment, Eva. Get the fuck in the car. Here we are. Here we are. I kind of am the getaway driver sometimes. I feel like it's like Christine Actually, does the long haul driving and then I drive us from the shows back to the hotels. <laughs> you certainly do. And we have had some creepy run-ins with uh, people who were a, a little too friendly with us. And we were like, Eva, just drive the car. Just get it. Just remember That's that. That's uh, true. The one I won't mention, but I think the one you're telepathically remembering with me where we needed someone to escort us to the car. I think you Ooh. you were the one that zoomed us on out of there. I think so. Yeah, I think I was like in the car. We're in the car. We'll talk about it in the car. We got to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So basically for this, for you today, I have, I started Googling best diamond heists, best female, th- like biggest female thieves. Wow. That kind of thing. So this took me to, it's a little bit different, but... I'm going to take you on a journey today of a scandalous high-class con slash theft that involves gossip, <gasps> diamonds, <gasps> fraud, oh. forgery, stop it, lesbian icons, Eva, gross, and also probably helped kickstart the French Revolution. The end. <laughs> Whoa! Hang on a second. <laughs> that is a lot to take. Um. So, I'm take it away. There's, I, there's just, there's just, I got a lot on my mind, but nothing's coming out of my mouth. So let's just move on. Okay, perfect. So this is the story of Jean de Saint-Rémy. I also, um, like the automatic writing, do not speak French and I'm so sorry in advance. Um, but we'll also try to automatic write this, uh, French for today for you. Um, so this is the story of Jean de Saint-Rémy. AKA the Comtesse de la Motte, AKA 
the French, she called herself the adventuress, which oh, someone call you. me that for, from now on would love that term. Next time you get us out of a, a sticky situation, you are the adventuress. That's <laughs> for sure. Thank God. Um, who is also the mastermind of an infamous scandal known as the affair of the diamond necklace. Shut the fuck up. Can you imagine being like the main character of an affair and that's the name of it? Yeah. So fun. No, it's really wild. And like, as I, like I mentioned, the French revolution kept popping up and I was like, oh my God, like every textbook ever from like world history or whatever. But it mentions this, like, as I was looking it up, it would mention like, also thought to like a factor in starting the French revolution was the affair of the diamond necklace. And I was like, wow, the thing I've been researching, what? That's so wild. Like, I feel like that's every robber's dream to make history books. You know, that's so interesting you say that, because I have a little bit about that later on with Jean a little bit, too, just because, like, as much as I, like, I read a lot of, like, different articles and, like, oh, yeah, I should, like, state my sources here, too. There was an article that I originally found her in the top uh, femtech leaders, the top 10 most famous female thieves in history. But I also got a lot of stuff from Wikipedia, Britannica, the British Museum, some things that were, like, a little you know, just like for lack of a better word, a little bit drier, but like they didn't quite always put her motives in. And like, I mean, they kind of did, but I was like, I think there's more. So like, I kind of speculated a little bit on like her like need for like things like that. Like, like you were saying, like a, you know, wanting to be a part of history type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Also side note, I also did a tiny bit of deep diving into Marie Antoinette because oh. this involves Marie Antoinette. My and God. I know. And like her life and death and potential queerness, which is <gasps> where the whole lesbian icon thing. Stop. This is literally becoming like a, an episode of Degrassi. There's so many twists and turns. The whole thing is just me. Li- this is okay. I'm glad you said that. Cause this is very twisty turny. The whole thing is very like gossipy. It's very like salacious. So oh. just get ready. Take me out. I'm so ready. Okay. So starting like any good 90s thriller action movie, a la Ocean's Eleven, The Italian Job, I'm mm-hmm. just going to list everyone. And I think that we should all in the way of those movies, just imagine the little like, you know, 90s, like computery scrawl coming across everyone's yes. like little thing of like, you know, this person, the mastermind, this person, the computer tech, that kind of thing. So that's yes. just to set the scene here. Okay, so first we have our adventuress. Her scroll would read, Jeanne de Saint-Rémy, a.k.a. Comtesse de la Motte, occupation, none, but definitely the mastermind of this whole affair, both of stealing diamonds and also of having affairs because she has a lot of affairs. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be her. (laughs) Okay, I literally wrote that in the notes and then took it out because I was like, I I think I do. I also (laughs) don't need to write it every single second. I also like, I I just want to know, like you've already won hottest tea of the week award because right before Eva started her story, we took a, a potty break and I also posted my uh my request for tea time Tuesday so people are yes. currently as we're talking submitting <gasps> uh drama and you really just came in hot so oh my god the real-time gossip wait I love this so much I'm gonna be thinking about that the whole time okay perfect okay so next up we have so this is kind of like picture also like Daniel Ocean just like gathering his team together Mark Wahlberg I've done it gathering I- You've done it. You've you've done the heist. Done <laughs> you've it. gotten the team. I've I've I, it's in my head. Yeah, perfect. So next up, so we've got Jean. 
Then we start seeing a high topped hairdo, lots of curls. We have Marie Antoinette. Occupation, For... child bride slash <laughs> probably not the right way to say that, but she was 14 when she was married off to Louis XVI. Um, she was also queen of France slash in the story, she is the unwitting Mark. Oh, okay. Okay. So after that, we have some like character actor type names, Balmer and Bossinge, who were actually wow. two jewelers. They were a jewelry firm that was well thought of. Um, surprisingly, not Gringotts Bank goblins, which they sound like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they do have a bunch of valuables. In one, one in particular is their $2.2 million diamond necklace, which is the target. Gotcha. Not to be confused with the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that we would like to steal, isn't there? So <laughs> I know. Now I'm just like mixing up genres, which is very telling of all of my interests. <laughs> okay, so next we have the Cardinal Prince Louis de Rhone, who um, I literally just wrote occupation dummy slash <laughs> bishop and also one of Jean's lovers. Dummy might be oh. kind of harsh. We can like reassess that later. We'll um, see. We'll see. We'll see how we feel about it. He's very, like, back and forth. He was the former ambassador to Austria when Marie Antoinette was, she is, uh, was Austrian before she became the French queen. Mm, she okay. was bartered into the marriage, basically, like, for political reasons. Um, so she knew him. He was in France, but she knew him from Austria, and she hated him. Small oh, little okay. tidbit of tea. I see. Okay. So planting he, the seeds. Yes, planting the seeds. Um, he is... Basically, his kind of whole thing is that he's trying to get back into her good graces because she's obviously so high up now. Gotcha. Um, then there is Marc Antoine Nicolas de la Motte, occupation unhappy husband, but willing participant oh. in, as you will see. Um, okay. He is also a little bit the getaway driver-ish kind of like vibe. He's the, he's the Eva of the group, I see. He's okay. a little bit, yeah. Um, so there are only a couple more now, but um, this is also the part where like, Mark Wahlberg or Daniel Ocean would be like, okay, every, all, everyone's in place, but if I don't get these two last people, nothing happens. Like, the, uh -huh. these are the crucial people here. Um, so second to last, we have Retu de Viette, who is a master forger, a member of the French kind of seedy underbelly, and another of Jean's lovers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And last but certainly not least is Nicole Delivia, who is a Parisian sex worker and undercover actor. An undercover actor. I kind of wrote like that's kind of what I call her because as you oh, okay. see, I was like, that's like not a thing. I was like, <laughs> I have lived in Hollywood for how long? I've never heard of an undercover actor, <laughs> and yet it's only it's all I want now just to be one. I'll you'll see how that factors in. Okay. Okay. Shortly. Okay, so to set the scene, picture basically, <laughs> I'm throwing another like mixed genre in here, but like Bridgerton. God, Eva. Okay. I know, the elevator pitch of here. this. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> so it's 1784 in Paris. So like frills, high court, gossip, so much gossip. Um, kind of like that duty bound, high class privilege type gossip, but against the backdrop of most of the rest of France just being like completely destitute and starving. Okay, got it. Yeah. 
it's kind of like a powder keg of a moment, a lot of sources said, in terms of like the, this, so like 1784 is only five years before the French Revolution starts and the storming of the Bastille. So like a lot's going on, just like okay. in this one little we are, moment. It's, it's, a, it's a politically tense space. Yes, yes. One okay. could very much call it that. Okay. Um, so let me paint like a quick little still life before I go into some backstory. So in 1784, our girl Jean, um, was pining for a better life. She was in an unhappy marriage. And even though she had two lovers that we know of, um, (laughs) she she was like, I need some more money, titles, something, hashtag dream big type, type vibes I was getting from her. Um, most of, most sources were like, she didn't have, like, it, it goes along with like the French, situation at the time like everyone was very destitute so she I can get into this a little bit later but she had some money coming in but not enough for her like sort of lavish lifestyle and Mm. also like you were saying I think she had a little bit of like a like an attention seeking in like a you know I'm not judging in like a way that I think is kind of her just wanting to like be friends with Marie Antoinette and or like seek influence and um, she's she's shooting her shot at climbing the ladder yes exactly I think that's kind of exactly what's happening most importantly she's really interested in this moment in getting an audience with Marie Antoinette most sources say right that she wanted to ask Marie Antoinette for a bigger stipend which I'll get into in a minute but yeah I think she wanted to live that like 1700s influencer lifestyle uh, look, it, whatever the 1700s like Pinterest board would have looked like, she had it. She was yeah. she, her account yes. was followed by many, you know. Yes, yes, yes. She was like looking for followers, I think. So yeah. everything kind of snowballs from there. So this is also where like I was like, oh, Marie Antoinette kept popping up. So I like really dug into. I like started looking her up, and then realized that's like a big. I just kept looking more and more into her. So this is like a little bit of my deep dive into her backstory. Do you know anything about Marie Antoinette? Uh, n- nothing that I didn't learn from the Elizabeth or uh, Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst. Dunst movie. That was, yes. That's all the information I've known. Okay. Well, that's perfect because I ended up watching that instead of Monster. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Backtracks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which that movie is actually really interesting. And a lot of sources were saying, like, you know, much more of, like, a sympathetic feminist-ish, like, kind of lens to look at her because history has painted her as kind of, like, basically the French people kind of turned on her in a way that she was, like, it's just really double-edged. Like, she was married. She was playing this role, this very specific, like, you know, royal court role, um, whereas the French people really, like, started seeing her as, like, the epitome of like the symbol of of like what was wrong in the country and it like wasn't necessarily her fault like there were a lot of things that needed changing and also she was kind of just playing her role and also like really young like there was like a whole there's like a lot like like, she was a literal 14 year old and like can you imagine the pressure like yeah exactly holy so My little bit of backstory here with Marie Antoinette is that she was the Queen of France from 1774 to 1792 and was notoriously the last queen before the French Revolution. So some, like, really wild TLDRing about the French Revolution. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, like, quite... (laughs) 
quite a layman's <laughs> summary. Yeah, yeah. Like, please don't quote me in any history book. No um, one could. No one could. It would, it, it would be so <laughs> clouded by actual solid information. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> um, is that basically it, like, ended monarchies in France and kind of helped kickstart democracy in France and other places like Hello Hamilton fans, the American Revolution was also happening around the same time. Okay. At this point, France in particular, like I said, was experiencing a huge class discrepancy. Um, like I mentioned, the royal court was just kind of like royal courting. And the meanwhile, people were like, some sources said, quote, rioting in the streets for bread is how... Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. Like dire things were... It was kind of a combo of like a lot of things, but like it seemed like a, a lot of the bigger things were like bad weather leading to bad crop harvest really bad taxes, um, extensive wars, and the state actually also paid for all of the royals. So, oh, hmm. yeah, it was like okay. kind of a weird, like big bit of things amongst a lot of other things. Again, TLDR, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so this is also like, I had a little bit of a side here because I was thinking about like the movie, if you remember, like has those scenes of like, I just kept thinking about how like trapped, she was within this like really lavish lifestyle like I feel like we saw a lot of that with like Megan and Harry recently and then in the movie mm. you see there are a couple scenes of like um Marie Antoinette waking up every morning and not being able to get dressed she's like freezing and she's not even able to get dressed until the right like quote princess is there to like help her get dressed because that's a privilege like she couldn't even reach for anything people had to hand it to her because that also was a privilege so right just like the trappedness of like the things that are like duty honor bound all of those things um also that's a little bit of my queer foreshadowing not in the movie but in my notes of the princesses just in my my own heart yeah just in my own like here we'll like just lay the little groundworks for that just remember the princesses for later Okay, got it. So I had a little bit here just of, like, the movie paints a much more sympathetic picture of Marie Antoinette than has, like, generally been the case. Because when I started researching this, I was like, oh, she's terrible. And then I was like, oh, she's, like, a woman in history. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, go figure. Like, it, yeah. she probably isn't 100% to blame. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's, like, you know, super nuanced and, like, all of the things that just, you know, almost anything is. So it's obviously not super redeeming that like, I, you know, we've all been in places and able to bring ourselves to a more conscious place of other people's plights. But again, she was so trapped and so isolated. It's hard to be like, yeah, she deserved to die for that. By guillotine, by the way, like she was like, yeah, yikes. Yeah. So basically she was super villainized throughout the ages. And especially at the time she was, yeah, again, seen as the symbol of people's oppression. One of the big examples that I thought was like, super interesting that I feel like I kind of heard of and they mention in the Marie Antoinette movie is that the phrase let them eat cake which is like yeah really notoriously attributed to Marie Antoinette but it's apparently pretty like well debunked that she never said that oh really yeah so like the story of it was supposed to be that like the French people were super pissed at her for living this like really opulent lifestyle and like she did like she gambled a lot she drank a lot she had a lot of like parties with her like really close friends but apparently at the same time like so I guess the story goes that the kind of the lower class folk were saying like hey we don't have enough to eat and she just kind of in a hand-waving way was like well let them eat cake like oh. which apparently was meeting like brioche which at the time 
and in general is like way more of a luxury than just plain bread because it has like eggs and milk. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, but most historians say she never said that. And it, actually in the movie, they someone like reads her kind of like a pamphlet of like Marie Antoinette said this and Kirsten Dunst character, she as Kirsten or Kirsten Dunst does her is like, I would never say that. Oh, so weird. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So basically to set the scene, like rumors were swirling about her constantly about, yeah, her like lavish lifestyle, her partying, her orgies, they said her affairs. Oh, and here we've made it to people saying that she was a lesbian, AKA that she also had female affairs. Okay. So historians definitely have some things to say about that. They think that they can prove at least one affair with a man, but most refute the idea that any of her children, she did end up having children eventually, that any of her children were illegitimate. Um, And by the way, is she still 14 during all this? She becomes queen at like 1920. So she's like a little bit older. I was like, damn, like they are really like throwing this poor little minor child through the, like that she is responsible for affairs at 14. I was about to get real heated. Okay. Well, kind of though, because so when she first got married, she was 14. And the first immediate thing is like, hey, you have to start having sex. And all of the conjugal, quote, conjugal visits between the king and the queen were recorded. Like people would come in and look at their sheets. Oh, ew. I know. Wild invasion of privacy. God. Yeah. When she was 14. I know. Oh my God. Okay. But if it helps, I don't know if it does or not. Uh, So she was under this massive amount of pressure. Louis the 16th, her husband was like really notoriously, it's kind of unclear because history kind of paints it a lot of different ways, but it sounds like he was either really like a, maybe a combination of really shy and, or like maybe had other like identified other ways. Maybe it's sort of unclear, but basically for their first seven and seven to eight years of marriage, they didn't have a ton of sex. She didn't start having children until like eight years into their marriage. Okay. Weird. Because like, yeah. wasn't he like known as like, was this the same guy? He like he was death. He was killing people because they couldn't provide him a son. No, I think that's someone else because this guy okay. was like really. He was really reclusive. Louis the Sixteenth. Okay, okay. sounded like. So I was and, like, it seemed weird that he would like hold off on trying for so long. Okay, never mind. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I didn't look into him a ton, but he in. I mean, in the movie and in my the like research that I did, it sounds like he was just like very removed, very into like the very specific things that he was like. He was really into locks. And so he would just like, yeah, just like, was like, I, my hobby is locks and would just like mess around with locks all day long. Like key locks? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He liked locks? Was he, was, hmm, was he neurodivergent? Because it sounds like a really, it sounds, I would really like locks. That sounds like something I would be so into, but I don't know why. And I, hmm, that's interesting. Honestly, like, in the movie, he's played by Jason uh, Schwartzman, and he's played in, like, it's, hard, it's like, such a fine line. Like, it, it does play a little bit neurodivergent. It also plays a little bit just, like, super shy, like, not around, like, not have not been around any romantic partner at all. It plays a little bit, like, maybe he's, maybe he identifies a different way. Like, maybe he has, like, some aspects of queerness to himself as well. Maybe. It's super it unclear. A, I mean, it could be a lot of things. But the fact yeah. that, that locks are being so highlighted right now, I'm like, is that, a, mm-hmm. like, a hyperfixation situation? Oh, because yeah. 
I could 100%. I mean, again, like I am aware I'm one of those people who just got diagnosed within the year and now I just attribute everything <laughs> to like some sort of neurodivergency. But like, it's just like, I could really find a way to get into fucking locks. I mean, and I could truly. really find a way to ignore all other tasks <laughs> to learn. Like, like Zandy, Christine's brother, obsessed with lighthouses. Oh my God, we yes. had, we had one conversation about it one time and I have really gotten into lighthouses lately like <laughs> so like now you've said locks and now i'm about to like completely forget everything else i'm supposed to do today just to go look up like what what was so interesting about them then that i'm like okay keep going sorry <laughs> well no it makes sense Woo! too because it's like well there's so much involved in locks i don't know how to fucking make a lock like if it was interesting detailed. then imagine how interesting it is now i yeah anyway i'm sorry that was that completely took away from like any point you were trying to make sorry listen no it did not because it brought us back to the italian job which the other job that i oh. would have liked which was Eva's hyperfixation <laughs> my hyperfixation <laughs> which is charlie's theron's character who is not only the getaway driver but she's the lock pick which is just Shut the most the fuck up really wow yeah, that, did actually, that was a perfect circle okay oh we've brought it all back around it always comes back to charlie's theron i mean <laughs> kind of in monster too i like didn't even realize but when i like the starting anyway Okay, here we go. We're we're just moving on from locks. <laughs> okay, please, God, the taste. <laughs> um, so yeah, she did eventually start having children, but it kind of that also like was one of the places where it started building, like the idea that she was you know was more interested in women, like couldn't seduce her husband, like all of these other things that mm. obviously are not great. So. Marie Antoinette, the more I looked up, I, like, got one whiff of it and then was, like, Marie Antoinette queer, question mark, Google, you know, just, like, <laughs> what's here? And then she came up, she kept, like, articles kept coming up about how she, like, naming her as a queer icon. And I was, like, do tell, tell me about this. So, apparently the basis for this is the rumors, but also that some historians think that there could be some truth in it. Um, her husband being distant, the public hating her. She really did like whether she was queer or not. She really retreated from public life and relied more and more on her ladies in waiting, aka her princesses. Yeah, who helped her? The ones who like you know would do all of those like daily tasks for her. Also, I'm sorry, but like the princesses that were like helping her get dressed. Are you mm -hmm. like is there is there a queerer beginning to a fantasy? I don't know. No, there's you not. I don't believe you, so. <laughs> sounds pretty gay from the get-go, my friend. So, okay. Yes. So, one of the princesses was Princess de Lamballe, who Marie Antoinette liked so much that she elevated her to the highest position she could, which was the superintendent of the household. Oh, she damn. gave her, circling back to stipends, she gave her a really big stipend hmm. to live off of. Um, and during, they only had a few times where they were actually apart. They, during one of the separations, they would exchange like love letters, basically of like, oh, you know, how much it. they missed each other. Um, oh. really notably. So like one of those separations, Marie Antoinette also had her, the princess's portrait drawn on the mirror that she used most so that she could see it as often as she was there. So gay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I like in a, in a lovely way. Like I just, yeah. like just writing little love letters on the mirror to each other. So sweet. It's very okay. sweet. And then it turns a little bit sad because oh. Marie Antoinette was killed. So right. 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 Spoiler alert. This is one of the more like gruesome parts of this before I get back into the diamond heist. Um, but it felt very true crimey. So I felt like I had to mention it. So, 
this princess, um, Lemball, they, the second separation was when Marie Antoinette, before she was arrested, but when she was sort of like fleeing ish, like she basically couldn't travel to see the princess. And so one of the things that they exchanged during that time was a was lock. A, of, a kiss? Was a kiss? No, no, it was a lock of Marie Antoinette's hair. That's really like, it's really, bl or really was really blonde. And so it was said that, or in the letter, it said that it was bleached by sorrow that they couldn't see each other. Oh. Yeah. So and they basically exchanged a kiss. Yeah. 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 So, and this was right before she died? Well, and it's interesting you say kiss because here we go. Just real what? quick. This is a little bit, this is very brutal. Um, what? So when Marie Antoinette was arrested, one of the last, well, this is sweet. One of the last things that was taken from her was a portrait of this princess that she had on her. And the princess was also arrested for her association with Marie Antoinette. And the princess was killed by <gasps> a, a mob and her <gasps> head was put on a spike and like paraded around the city. Oh my God. I know. And eventually it was taken to Marie Antoinette's the window of her cell and people were chanting like give her one last kiss because she was like it was oh, like i know no. it's so sad i'm so sorry it's so so sad um oh no i know oh that's awful it's really really bad um but yeah moving on from that quickly and with haste as you said this is also really sad but Brie Antoinette herself was tried and executed by guillotine in october of 1793 she was found guilty of high treason depletion 1973 I'm so sorry. 1793. Okay. Yes. So sorry. I was like, uh, oh my God, the same time as the <laughs> Philip experiment. Crazy. I, okay. Yeah. I was kind of like, wait, what are the numbers? Cause I think I'm like number dyslexic. Like there are so many times that I just like flip numbers. So that's probably what I did. Um, okay. So she was found guilty of treason, depletion of the national treasury and conspiracy against the state. But even after her death, so this is kind of an upswing here. She became sort of a code word for queer people at the time where what? I know. So like kicking off this like longstanding tradition of Marie Antoinette as a gay icon, which is where like a lot of people were saying like a lot of the, so like even as recent as, I mean, as recent, I guess this was a while ago now, but um, Madonna dressed as Marie Antoinette in her Vogue video. So it's kind of come through the ages, but at the time, yeah, it was said that, you know, obviously it wasn't super safe for women to be like, hi, are you yeah. queer as well? So one of the ways they would do that is that they would start wearing their hair in like a higher up fashion as Marie Antoinette, as like wow. a little code. Or they would say things like, um, have you heard the rumors about Marie Antoinette as kind of like <gasps> a little code to be like, hi, are you queer too? Oh my gosh, that's so that's kind of like the original, like the earring in one ear or like today's... Yeah. Today's this with the, yeah, with like the rest. Just little codes. Yeah. Well, little symbols. It sounds like also because uh, it's I, I think it's kind of outdated now, but originally a way that you would ask people if they were gay, especially if it was a gay man, you would ask if they were a friend of Dorothy's. Like oh, from, yeah. from uh, Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. So maybe are you a friend of Dorothy's was the new and improved version of have you heard about Maria Antoinette. It makes know. no, it makes so much sense that like, you know, throughout the ages in unsafe times and places that, you know, queer yeah. people have had to resort to different ways to find each other, which is obviously look, all sad, these years later people still have to do it. Isn't I that know. nice? Oh god, it's like ugh. 
Well, my friends, it is really terrible on. I think you'll like this quote to, to bring us out of the doldrums here. Kayla Goggins, a writer from one of the articles that I read that was sort of like, you know, going through the queer history of Marie Antoinette. This quote I really liked of hers was whether she was or wasn't gay is almost beside the point. Marie Antoinette may have helped facilitate over 200 years of lesbian hookups, making her probably one of the first modern lesbian icons. (laughs) Okay. That reason and that reason alone I'm a big fan. Yeah, right? Big fan. Yeah. Yeah. That that I love. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, yeah, that puts, like, such a twist on Marie Antoinette. You can see why I, like, rabbit, like, just deep dived into this. Yeah. But I'm so sorry. I haven't even started the Diamond Heist yet. So. (sighs) Oh, my God. Okay. Let's go. There is still a Diamond Heist. So, basically, all of this is to set the scene. That So, we're going back to 1784 all the gossip swirling around Marie Antoinette, also giving that kind of the context of like, oh God, this eventually leads to the way that the French people see her um, and then the French Revolution. So all of a sudden, Marie Antoinette in 1784 starts hearing a new rumor about herself that she is refusing to pay Balmer and Bossinge, our, our Gringotts goblins, uh-huh. specifically for a very specific diamond necklace. Okay. So I'm going to send you a picture of this diamond necklace real quick and see what you think of it because, listen, God bless, but it's not my taste. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I'll let you know what it gets there. You'll know when I either agree with you or I'm obsessed. So (laughs) it'll be one of the two. Okay. I just sent it to you. It should show up. It's like. It's so pretty. I mean, it's a lot. Like, it's. Like, that's. That caused history. I don't right? think so. Yeah. Right. There, but also, again, like, just like how imagine wanting to be like a robber that makes history books. Imagine wanting to be like the designer that makes history books. Like, yeah. this was, this was not, this was not it though. Like, I mean, it made <laughs> history books, but like, I don't, it certainly didn't deserve it compared to what I think other, some other jewelry out there does. That's, it looks like curtain drapes. Oh my God. It kind of does. Yeah. Okay, well, I love that you said that because that segues so perfectly into the backstory of this necklace, which is that, so the jewelers basically bankrupted themselves making it and trying to sell it because Mm. it was so, it was so (laughs) expensive that once they made it, they were like, oh, fuck, like only a high certain few people can actually buy this, but we need to Mm -hmm. also sell it very quickly to get our money back from it. Sure. So... They had initially tried to sell it to Louis XVI's father for his scandalous mistress, Madame du Barry, who was in the Marie Antoinette movie. She's like the salacious, everyone is like gossiping about her. And then she like, like skitters off as the king gets sick. And then she like leaves because he's sick and is like about to die. Okay. That was like the original intention was like, oh, we'll make it. The king will buy it for his mistress, but he doesn't do it. So, okay, he, for for whatever reason, also maybe thought, no thanks. Um, And then he died. So they were like, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do now? Right. So they tried again with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and she was like, also, no thanks. And actually, some sources say that she said something along the lines of, like, we need more ships instead of diamond necklaces. Oh. Which I... I stand by that. Yeah. Right. It's hard to know exactly where that fell, but I was kind of like, doesn't that like turn the tides a little bit in your favor that she's like, you know, pushing aside opulence for like maybe something more political, but like, yeah, 
didn't okay, really, whatever. I think, didn't make too much of a, a dent in that. So basically, at this point, the jewelers are like, shit, like we, no one who can afford this necklace wants it. <laughs> that should tell you something, friends. Maybe step out of the jewelry game. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right? Yeah. It's not, it's not going well. Not for you, yeah. So how did this rumor start that she not only wanted the necklace, but had actually acquired it and was somehow stiffing the jeweler? Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is where we meet back up with our adventuress, Comtesse de la Motte. Uh-huh. So let me real quick rewind and tell you a little bit about her because she's really interesting as well. Jeanne de Valais Saint-Rémy was born in northeastern France in 1756 and grew up super poor. Her father was always drunk and made ends meet by what Wikipedia called, quote, expedience, which oh. when I looked it up said it meant convenient and most likely immoral activities. So oh, I have no idea okay. how he like, did that. Yeah. I like the definition, though. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, like... Like alluring in a way to be like, yeah. what do- that only gives me more questions. <laughs> right. All of a sudden, I wait a minute. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so her mother was a court servant, and Jean was one of six. Although three of her siblings died in infancy, and sadly, she and her uh, remaining two siblings, so the three of them, were neglected and often ha- often had to beg for food to stay alive. Oh shit. Yeah, it's disputed exactly who saved the kids, but one of two families and or a priest stepped in and saved Jean and her brother and sister. Okay. And in a fun plot twist, one of these families had the kids' genealogy looked into at Versailles, and it turns out that they were from a dormant royal line. No way! Yeah, like maybe though. (laughs) Oh, you really sold it like they had stumbled <laughs> upon like a, a Greek god or something. Okay. Well, I think they, they kind of had like in some ways because they pretty immediately there was like a program set up in place at the time where like if you were from a family like that, that you there was like a, an assistance program where you got, again, a stipend oh, for that. Okay. Got it. But it's also really questioned like because of the way that she later acted people were like well was she really like it was very kind of gotcha okay got it back and forth even on top of the fact that her lineage back to this royal family was through quote like illegitimate like through illegitimate children okay um so she was descended from king henry the second through the valet royal line a family that had ruled in France from the 1200s to the 1300s, but had basically run out of heirs. And it was through illegitimate children that she had, like, descended. So there was still, like, a lot of, again, gossip kind of swirling around that, too. That, like, it did seem like she was related, but people were, like, you know, had little tidbits to, right. okay. to gossip about. <laughs> I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Hmm... I like to think I'm above that, but I feel like if I had that kind of information, I would tell somebody. Yeah, honestly, a lot of this felt like, "Mm, how culpable would I have been in a lot of these, like, gossipy situations, you know? Because it's just... Something like that, I feel like I'd be like, oof, that's... that's, I'd at least have to... I need one tell. I need at least one (laughs) good tell. That's it. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just so, cause so like even moving on from that. So like Jean went to boarding school, she and her sister were supposed to become nuns, but like that was very much not in her character. So while her sister was becoming a nun, Jean, uh, by 1780 had already married Marc Antoine Nicolas de la Motte while she was heavily pregnant, which obviously was oh. like a no, no at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She like gave birth only a month after the wedding and, Sadly, her twin. She had twins. They died within a few days, gotcha. which is really sad. Um, but that's again to kind of show that like she lived kind of a fast and scandalous life at the time, outside of you know. But like was doing it her own way. I don't know. She was making it special, making yeah. it unique. <laughs> yeah. So it's at this point that she really starts to capitalize on anything royal. So at this point, Jean and Marc Antoine decide to start calling themselves the Comte and Comtesse de la Motte Valais, which is her, like, illegitimate lineage. Okay. And most sources I read were like, why? We don't know. We don't know why she started calling herself, or why they started calling themselves that. Just picked it out of a hat. Or, like, at least from their their lineage, they just wanted to rescind their current name. Yeah, exactly. It's like, reach for the the stars, you know? Sure. (laughs) Manifest yourself a new identity. Do Mm -hmm. what you need to do. That's okay. Yeah. So they start calling themselves that. And uh, she starts to kind of target, kind of like try to insert herself into the front Louis XVI royal court, including wants to be around and close to Marie Antoinette. Oh, close like. Oh, you know. No ish, but there is a bit at the end that I will remind me when we get to her memoirs that she wrote. <clears throat> okay, <laughs> <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, here's some more tea. Turns out that she was really bad at living within her means, and her husband—you know—he had a job. He was um, a gendarme, which is a French police officer, a military person. Um, but she was always kind of reaching for more. And okay. uh, so she, again, kind of like I mentioned before, was really interested in kind of bumping into and maybe casually becoming friends with Marie Antoinette and maybe possibly asking her for like a, a like a bigger stipend because like, oh, hi, I'm royal and I'm a comtesse. And like, did you know that? And yeah, just doing a little elbow bump, a little bump in the bows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Climbing, climbing whatever ladder is needed. Yeah, exactly. And it is really interesting because it's not super, like, looking at kind of the context of it, it's not, like, super out of reach because, A, Marie Antoinette was already giving stipends to people that she really liked, whether or not she was actually romantically involved with them. She had Right, including, like, the, well, I guess not including, I was going to say potentially romantic. I mean, she was even giving it to her, like, princess, the person, like, let her, like, all of a sudden climb the ranks to like a housemaiden or whatever it was so yeah exactly and like there were other people too that I I didn't mention but there were two other um there was another there was someone she made a duchess basically and like gave her this like 13 room apartment in Versailles and then um there was someone else an English actress um who talked a lot about yeah like her so she's she is helping people that that are in her circle exactly yes yeah so I think Jean was like can I be in that circle? Mm-hmm. And then B, it also turns out that at the time, if you wore fancy enough clothes, you could go into Versailles and uh, what I think it was Wikipedia described as, quote, um, just viewing the royal family. So you could go in. and just... <gasps> I've heard of that where like they yeah. would literally be having like dinner and you would just like walk 
just stand outside of the room and just watch them eat dinner or something. Yeah, which is weird a weird concept to be like, oh, if you like they cared so much about like order and like lineage and all of that. And then they were like, but if you dress fancy enough, we'll let you in and you can just come watch. <laughs> like, yeah. It was like, I imagine that's like the tourist trap of a century though. I mean, <gasps> yes. Can you imagine that in today's world in Hollywood? Like, Oh, watch the Avengers have dinner together. Are you fucking kidding me? I would be oh the first person in line. So I could understand how that was alluring and like a good way. Also, some people could see it as like a network potential. That's yeah, that's definitely true because I think that was very much what Gene was trying to do was to like get yeah. in that, you know, just that networky potential exactly. Yeah. So, Jean put on her Sunday best and she went to court a ton and tried to kind of <laughs> bump into Marie Antoinette. Um she really hoped that the queen would notice her and the queen did. But not in the way that she wanted. Oh, God. She embarrassed herself, didn't she? Kind of. Well, it's kind of like the thing of like, it seems like Marie Antoinette probably, she had some preconceived notions about her. Like, I think she probably asked around about, like, saw her, asked around about her, and then she heard probably a lot of the backstory of like, children out of wedlock, like, you know, all had an unhappy marriage, had some lovers. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Yes. So I think the queen was like, No, thank you. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's kind of like at this point, oh, um, right. There was also that she was in an unhappy marriage. She had taken uh, one lover, Rateau de Villette, who I mentioned, who was the um, sort of local, they called him a gigolo. I hope that is still an appropriate term. If it's not, I definitely want to be sensitive to that. Um, He also was a fellow gendarme to her husband. Um. And she had taken another, another, um, she had become mistress to another person who I mentioned before, the Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan, who was, again, the person that Marie Antoinette knew from her childhood and didn't like. So I think she was also kind of... Oh, okay. Yeah, she did not make herself look good. She was not looking shiny and bright and new. No, and like not through any, like it's hard to know, like she probably wouldn't have known that. She probably was just kind of reaching and was like, oh, this cardinal, let me like... But then picked the wrong person. Like it was just someone that Marie Antoinette was like, no, no, not him. Uh, Okay, got it. Yeah. So just bad luck of the draw. Yeah, exactly. So Marie Antoinette refused to meet with Jean and it didn't really like... I, it was, I initially wrote this part as like, and then it forced her. And I was like, I mean, she could have just done nothing. Like it didn't force her to do anything, but it really was like the turning point of like, here's, here's where the diamond heist really starts coming into play. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So, um, here is the scam. Let's go. <laughs> We're here. So. Jean knew about the necklace and the fact that the queen didn't want it and maybe wouldn't be paying too close of attention to it is what I was thinking. Sure. Yeah. Um, Like, oh, well, no one's looking at it anyway. So if I snag it, they could just go missing or something. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, no one famous or fancy wants this necklace. Like, might as well try to capitalize. I'll take care of it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So with the help somewhat unwittingly of her husband and both of her lovers, Jean concocts a plan. Wow. Okay, I love that they're all a team. Kind of. You'll see how it's like kind of interconnected oh, and like. Okay. Some of them are a team and some of them like the Cardinal are not. Gotcha. Okay. So 
First, Jean suggests to the Cardinal that Marie Antoinette did indeed want the necklace, making it seem like they were closer, her and Marie Antoinette, and that she knew this and had confided this in her. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the Cardinal was like, go on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd like to know. Like, he's trying to get into Marie Antoinette's favor. So then Jean has this other lover who is a forger. A forger. Yeah. Okay. She starts having the forger, Ratu de Viette, starts forging letters to the cardinal, from Marie Antoinette to the cardinal, talking about how much she wanted the necklace, even though her husband wouldn't buy it for her. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they kind of write back and forth, Marie Antoinette being like, hi, I would like this necklace. Hello, Cardinal. Like, do you want to be back in my good graces? And the Cardinal's uh-huh. like, I do. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. 1000% I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So to the point, it gets to the point in the letters where the letters actually suggest, quote, Marie Antoinette suggests that they should meet up somewhere to talk about the necklace. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, and a formal, quote, formal reconciliation at court is what the cardinal was wanting from that. Okay. So, enter Nicole D'Olivia from the beginning, our undercover actress. There who, we are. Yeah. I was wondering. We are I, here. Okay. I actually totally forgot about her. She was so undercover. But I, <laughs> now I'm back to being very confused about her purpose, so. <laughs> so, she basically, Jean hired her basically paid her to impersonate the queen in versailles like in the gardens of versailles apparently so well that no one noticed i guess it was also that it was night too like it definitely said that it was like specifically nighttime so i wonder if they like you know were like oh i can't come closer you know maybe if it was like a right situation i'm I'm just off to the to the bathroom (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) talk to me through this hole in the flowers yeah Yeah, (laughs) it's not a french accent i'm so sorry it's actually (laughs) so not french at all from either of us what were we doing there oh god um but yeah so i'm thinking some kind of like subterfuge was used there and also, like, to give Nicole D'Olivia some some props, I feel like maybe, like, at this point, Marie Antoinette was so, like, caricaturized, too. Like, she was painted, drawn everywhere, like, in pamphlets and, like, cartoons and things. So mm-hmm. I wonder if she, too, just, like, took it, learned from it, and was like, that could, uh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, fair enough. We It mm-hmm. can't be that hard. <laughs> right, right. She's everywhere right now. She's so big. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so they actually talk in the in the um the garden. They talk about the necklace and their reconciliation and the cardinal is like, "All right, we're doing this." All right. So, riding high from this encounter, the cardinal was like, "Wow, I'm about to have it made in the in shade." In the shade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, he basically puts the necklace on his credit card. <laughs> <laughs> what now yeah that's why i called him the dummy because i was like he he's the one that i mean i feel bad because he does get played pretty hard but he also just like falls for it he just so, so blindly hard. just like put it like there's gonna be receipts on that right like there's gonna be correct like, okay that's yes. where we're, that's where we're heading okay yes yes so he for sure he so he goes to the jeweler and he signs a contract with the jewelers pledging his credit to pay for the necklace in installments, thinking that he's going to get the money from Marie Antoinette. Oh, okay. I got that he can just pass it along that he's like this intermediary doing this favor for her, but she's like the monetary 
you know, gotcha. backer okay. of the whole situation. Um, so, of course, who better to deliver the necklace to Marie Antoinette than our friend Jean? Okay. Well, <laughs> how does this go, Eva? Tell me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're at the point where things are about to fall apart because... <laughs> okay, wow. If, if someone make that a, a sound clip for everyday life, <laughs> we're at the point yep. where we're about to fall apart. Yep. We're well. just... Things are about to go uh, go Heck, a little I'm wrong. There. I'm there right now. All right, yeah, I know what that <laughs> I know what that feeling's like. Okay, here we are. Um, so yeah, so basically we're at this point that like the cardinal is, he hands the necklace over to Jean, um, thinks he's going to be living the high life with Marie Antoinette. Um, instead, Jean gives the necklace to her husband, who immediately starts selling it off in pieces. So like takes it apart diamond by diamond sells it in Paris and he actually immediately just like skedaddles to London. So he's gone for like the whole of the French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Like, okay. Bye-bye. Like I think See he ya. was already kind of looking for a way out of it. Like I don't think the marriage, like I don't think either of them were like we want this to continue. I think they're like, let's do this and then maybe never see each other again. It's like, this is our, this is our one last ride or die moment together. I think, yeah, that's what it like kind of read like to me. I have no clue, but like, that's what it felt like. Okay. Um, so those two are like, wow, we're rich now. Look what we've done. Meanwhile, the Cardinal is like waiting for Marie Antoinette to talk to him in court and get his money to make these first payments. So like, stressful situation for him and meanwhile the jewelers are also waiting for this first installment of the payment like hi we gave you this necklace and you i think they put down some kind of like deposit but they were like okay first installment time to pay up Mm -hmm. and the cardinal's like waiting waiting as you can guess those things do not happen so he does he just get like fucked over for this then because he was never able to pay it back Kind like, of. He's like kind of like the the first smoking gun character <laughs> out of all of them of like, oh, well, that guy's in trouble. Well, the ending is kind of interesting because this is the point where like literally like so basically the points now are like it, basically just what happens to people at the end is like really interesting because he is definitely like the fall guy, but he doesn't fully like his fall is not too hard. Like he doesn't fall too, oh. too hard, which okay. is kind of interesting. So basically the jewelers are coming to the Cardinal and the Cardinal is like, listen, on the down low, I bought this for Marie Antoinette and like, she's good for it. Look how rich she is. Uh Like, just don't make a big deal about it. But like, we got to go to her for money. So the jewelers (laughs) go to her and that's where it really starts unraveling because Marie Antoinette is like, listen, not only do I not want this fucking necklace, but I hate all of these people involved. (laughs) Can you literally imagine getting just trapped in this weird little scandal (laughs) where it's like, I don't want that weird shitty product. And also (laughs) like I, who told you I even speak to these people? Right. It was kind of like, I felt bad for her. Cause I was, she had, I feel like she was like, even if I did want this like wild necklace, like I wouldn't go to these fools for it. Like it feels like a lot of this could have been explained away with logic and everyone just kind of actively didn't pay attention to it. You know, that's so interesting because I feel like a lot of what was happening at this moment was very not super logical. Like the French people obviously wanted change and they also were using Marie Antoinette as like not a super logical, like placeholder for that. And uh-huh. like there was just so much gossip. And like a lot of this seems like just such a, uh, like a moment in time with all of that says me, the French historian. 
Hey, between the two of us, that is absolutely who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So, obviously, the jewelers are like, this sucks. But, like, they go talk to Marie Antoinette. And that's when it, like, really starts coming apart. And then a lot of sources say that it's somewhat odd that the king and queen make it public. So, like, they could have just done it all under... You know, right, like, like, why is this becoming, like, a scandal that everyone knows about? Like, why Exactly. Like, like, in their version of, like, a People magazine or something. Like, I feel like it, it, yeah, I mean, you already yeah. said it, But, like, why is this getting blown up when it could have been such a private matter? Yeah. I guess because it was, like, I imagine it would be really sensationalized if I found out that, like, a famous person I follow all of a sudden had, like, this, like, little group of misfits that allegedly mm-hmm. they were friends with and then also like there was some scandal about stealing joy i mean i would i yeah in terms of like my interest and in, like tabloids mm-hmm. for like the 1700s or, or 1600s or whenever it was and she's a woman of like very polarizing opinions or people don't maybe yeah. even all one negative opinion towards her like and now there's this massive scandal. I would totally fall mm-hmm. for it. I think I wouldn't even oh. think about the logic. I'd be like, well, sure. that tracks. And also there was no such thing as like internet or even like the concept of like checking evidence. Fact like checking? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> it was like his word against her word against, their, you know, the jeweler's word. Like it just was like, and it just like, I had this later too, that it's just like, you're so exactly right that this story like the king and the queen basically were like we need to uphold our reputations we need to come out and like tell everyone blah 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 but everyone already kind of hated them so much and had such a specific idea of how like lavish and like opulent their lifestyle was there was no way that they were not gonna believe it that they were like oh right you didn't like create this weird little subterfuge moment to like get a diamond necklace and like ruin our country like why would yeah, it feels yeah. it feels like it's if I were mad enough at a person and something that ridiculous came out, I could almost believe it. Especially if it was yeah. someone with that much power and that much like notoriety, like you could probably tell me anything about anyone and like I would want to check it before in today's world at least. I would want to fact check yeah. it before I like ran with it, but I would be shocked nonetheless. I'd be like, "Wow, if that's right. true, this is pretty crazy." Right. And it's like it's interesting cuz I feel like we Like, I don't know a ton of the lead up, but it does feel like we now have been through so much more in terms of, like, fact checking and reality versus, like, you know. (laughs) And and reality, yes. (laughs) Yeah, you know, all of that, uh, that, like, you know, we might be more inclined to think through those things. Whereas, like, I think in that moment, it was very, like, yeah, like you're saying, there's no other sources. There's no, there's nothing else except what people are hearing and and people are also like meanwhile while they're hearing this they're starving like they're dying they're like not in a yeah, place yeah they're angry mhm yeah yeah so again like super powder cake moment so basically the king and queen make it super public they have basically everyone arrested like involved in it um uh, mostly jean and the cardinal are publicly arrested and brought to trial yeah, it's thought that they did this to salvage their reputation but it really did the opposite that the public hearing all of the details were like no, we, we still think you're at fault, king and queen. Right. Um, so the cardinal was actually tried and found not guilty. Um, huh. So the, the king actually had him exiled, but had him exiled to his own property. So he was just like... So he on house fine. arrest. Yeah, kind of like house arrest, exactly, but probably on like a big enough piece of land that he was like, yeah, I'm okay, I'm fine. Okay. Because um, he actually lived out the rest of his life in exile there at his property. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, in the south of France. 
Um, Jean's lover, the forger, was also arrested, found guilty of forgery, which, like, I guess that makes sense because that's probably one of the bigger crimes. Um, Literally known as the forger, I imagine, yeah. would be in trouble for forgery at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so he was exiled as well, not imprisoned. Thankfully, I actually thought that our uh, our impersonator slash undercover actor, Nicole D'Olivia, was going to get the roughest treatment because she was a sex worker and she was the one who actually impersonated the queen. But she was also acquitted. She was let go, um, even for impersonating the queen. But as for Jean, she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison in addition to being whipped and branded. Holy shit! Yikes. Wow. Um, but the public really sympathized with her and still blamed Marie Antoinette, um, obviously because of just everything. Um, and so Jean was actually in prison, but by 1989, which is when the French Revolution started, so by that time, Jean had already escaped prison, oh. quote, dressed as a boy, Oh. made her way to London, and published her memoirs. The memoirs were what? What were they? What? I just was going to try to say, it basically is like, the title of it is like, the memoir justificants de la comtesse de la vallée de la motte. It's basically her being, I think it's like, the mem like, my memoirs of like, my justifications for my actions, like describing everything. That okay, but like, it's giving girl boss energy. Like, I'm kind of here sure. for it. I'm yeah. like, you know what? You do what you needed to do, girl. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely goes down the trail of, like, uh, slandering Marie Antoinette. She talks about, she's kind of like, oh, woe is me. Like, Marie Antoinette did all of this, kind of capitalizing on the public opinion of her. But she also did mention that uh, she and Marie Antoinette had a bit of, a like, a love interest. That was only mentioned in, like, one tiny little bit of a detail. So there's not much there, but... Just enough. Just enough to... Yeah. To hit the sweet spot that I need. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and then, so this story just like kept getting wilder and wilder. So, like, really to close out on a full dramaful note from Jean here, um, she actually died in London almost exactly two years before Marie Antoinette was killed in 1793 by, quote, as a result of her injuries sustained from falling from her hotel room window while hiding from debt collectors. Whoa, holy shit. She just never yeah. had it easy. Okay, no. so that's... Wow. Yeah, and it gets really wow, bad because... Wow, that's a bad one. Yeah, a newspaper at the time actually reported that she had been found, quote, terribly mangled, her left eye cut out, one <gasps> arm, one of her arms and both of her legs were broken. <gasps> oh so, my god. Yeah, it's almost like, like maybe she fell and also... There was like some... fell onto barbed wire. What the fuck happened? Yeah, it seems like I don't know. Maybe with like debt collectors, it seemed to imply more there. I mean, I don't fully know at all, but jeez, okay, she yeah, shit. So, so she just had a rough start and a rough ending too. Yeah, exactly. And meanwhile, Marie Antoinette's reputation would never recover from this. Most sources quote the affair of the diamond necklace as one of the straws that broke the camel's back when it came to the start of the French Revolution. It was scandalous and about wasted money and opulence and obviously Marie Antoinette, who the French people already, like we talked about, symbolized their oppression. Mm. Especially when she was, you know, in their eyes, eating cake and sneaking diamonds in the dead of night while they were all dying of starvation. Right, right. Like, just on a fun little adventure with all of her millions when, like, people can't even eat fucking bread. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oof. 
So yeah, that's basically it. Everything boiled over right after that. The French Revolution started in 1789, along with the storming of the Bastille, and then the killing of Marie Antoinette in 1793. So that's basically that story. But I do have a small little current day fun fact, fun-ish, kind of bittersweet fact, um, in terms of royal families and queerness. So actually... Only two weeks ago, as of now, it's October 26th, um, the Netherlands, my old study abroad haunt, um, they actually just announced the prime minister there. Uh, they still have a royal family, but they do have um, also a prime minister. And basically the prime minister recently was just like, they were the first country ever to be like, hi, royal family, you can marry whoever you want, including queer partners. <gasps> yeah. Fun. So God bless the Netherlands. Um, they also were actually the first God country. Bless the Netherlands. Truly, they are also the first country to legalize same-sex marriage just in general for like the general population um, over oh, twenty years ago too. That's so nice. So love them. Love the Netherlands. Love the Netherlands. Are mm-hmm. you kidding me? Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's the story. I'm so sorry that was so long. Of hey, this was this was long all the way through. It was not just you. So, but no, mm-hmm. I'm I'm so glad that we had. I mean, thank you for teaching me about like lesbian icons. Um, <laughs> I'm never gonna say no to that. Uh, and thank you for being on for a whole month oh of, and that's why we drink. I hope everyone had a good time yeah. listening to Sweet Eva. You know, I uh, what's so fun is I had just done like an Instagram live, uh, maybe only like a week ago, mm-hmm. and people were saying like, "What are you gonna do once once Christine's like you know on maternity leave? Like, are you just gonna do oh, yeah. the episodes yourself?" In that Instagram live, like six different people said like it'd be really cool if eva comes on and i was i couldn't say anything but i was like oh that's it's a nice little validation that everyone's gonna dig you so that's so uh, sweet that like made me cry a little bit i really was i hope i did well i hope i did the tiniest bit of justice to christina all and yeah i just really enjoyed it so thank you so much for having me on and letting me wax poetic about so yeah. many <laughs> well next week we are gonna have uh, a new guest host come on for the next month and uh someone that uh people might also enjoy getting to listen to yeah. and then after that we've got we've got some more people coming on so um thank you eva we appreciate you and we love you and Aww. uh also, everyone give like a nice little good vibe to Eva because you had to experience doing hours of research and it, sometimes it's overwhelming. So <laughs> I'm very proud of you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It was super. Again, I had such a good time doing it. So I just, yeah, I just appreciated it. Good way to end it. You know, queer history in some way. You so. know, I figured I had, <laughs> I started it. I started it with, you know, so a little, little, little queer story. Oh yeah, you started with lesbians. You end yeah. with lesbians. I mean, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> you just, you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's why we drink. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.